podcast this week, we're joined by a man who bestrode the 80s movie scene like a colossus. Yes, it's Matthew Modine, star of Full Metal Jacket, Birdie, and Married to the Mob, as he tells us about his new movie, Wrong Turn. What, did you think I meant someone else? Well, as luck would have it, we're also joined by one of the biggest movie stars of all time, Eddie Murphy, star of Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, Coming to America, and more, as he talks about returning to Samunda in Coming to America. All that unusual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is booking a flight to Samunda the second this pandemic eases. And don't you give me any of that, Chris. It's not a real place. They shot the movie in Atlanta, Georgia. Nonsense. I I'm going to Samunda. All those air miles I've accrued over the years are not going to waste. Not on my watch. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Emperor Podcast this week. I'm delighted to be joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning once again. We have, as ever, our geek queen and noted author, <laughs> Helen O'Hara. Hello. How do you do? How how do you do? How You've do gone up do? in the world since Women vs. Hollywood. I know. Well, I'm Book of the Week this coming week, you know. Are you? Four. I am. I'm very fancy now. <laughs> well, thank this may be Helen's you. last podcast. She won't, be, uh, <laughs> she won't deign to sup with the likes of us no more. That's amazing. Well mm. done. Have they read it? I, I, I mean, I can only assume not, um, but you know, <laughs> they've, uh, they've extracted some of it anyway. I went into a studio and read a little bit of it uh, in, in a safely, socially distanced manner of course, uh, a few, of course. few m- weeks, months ago, some, some yeah. time ago. And, uh-huh. um, and yeah, Radio 4 Booth of the Week, Women versus Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Well done. Thank genuinely, you. genuinely awestruck. Well done, Helen O'Hara. Next up, we have our great big fucking nerd and noted reader of books, James Dyer. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Hello, James. How are you? I am fine. I am fine. Great small talk, Jim. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's all I have for you. Didn't You didn't sound like you're fine, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> it sounds like I'm you're... warming up. It takes a while. I'm like an old car in the morning. You've got to pull the choke out. You've got to turn I it over a bit. Pardon. I'm so sorry. I have no intention of touching your joke. <laughs> no, no, my word. Pull my joke. Yeah. Grab my dipstick. None of that stuff. None of that stuff. This is a clean family podcast, folks. Yeah. Millennials listening to this again. What the fuck is a choke? <laughs> yeah. What's a joke? What's a car? <laughs> yeah, in fairness, they can't afford them because they have insane student loans and housing prices have just continued to rise. It's outrageous. I'm with you, millennials. That's true. Yeah. Feel your pain. Yeah, I feel your pain. Finally, in the rotating fourth chair this week, we welcome back a man so fashionable it's like he's been dressed by Ruth E. Carter <laughs> when she's been in a hurry and the only shop left was Burton Menswear oh. or River Island. <laughs> Sick burn. <laughs> that is outrageous. <laughs> it's- it's a Mon Warman. How are you, sir? <laughs> I went you were doing to be so well, very Chris. excited about that intro to being what is this guy saying very quickly. Hello, Amon, Christopher. As your lawyer, Amon, I will take up your case. That was that was uncalled for. Unwarranted. Oh no, you've you've knocked it out of the park once again this week. It's your your screen's gone a bit blurry, but you are wearing a sort of I don't know what is that? This is it's a pole, pole roll neck. What is that? What are you wearing? I'm not sure what the technical term is. Turtleneck. <laughs> I'm also not sure it's appropriate to ask a colleague what they're wearing in, during, in a workplace environment, but you know, sure. I'll be filing a complaint. <laughs> Tell me how we're we talking boxes, briefs, thong. Oh, no. How are we doing this? <laughs> 
do we all have things on our on our lower bits right now? I I'll you never know, tell. I, I, I am wearing I am wearing trousers. I am well jeans. Oh, jeans. Thank God. So yeah, it's all good. This, again, this is a family show. The Manson mm-hmm. Family Show. Anyway, we're going <laughs> to barrel straight into the three-fact structure this week, which is, of course, the beloved section in which my three mm-hmm. colleagues of such lethal cunning have to come up with an arcane, obscure, or unusual movie fact and hope that I don't know it. And I award a point to the winner. Helen is currently in front. Hang on. I thought we'd established that me and Helen were level. Oh, did you win last week? But then yes. I thought I won. Okay. Yeah. No, 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 James won last week. That's a okay, good cool. point. Good, good yeah, point. Awesome. James has already corrected me on three-fact structure. Oh, <laughs> Does he James get a bonus and Helen point for that? Do we skip level. it? Yes. <laughs> James and Helen both get a bonus point. They have now stretched their lead ahead of the rotating fourth chair, hey uh, which means hey, there's a lot of pressure on a mom's shoulders. <laughs> 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 so I'm going to let you go first, sir. Yeah. Well, you know, the week after I was last on, James slandered me when it came to the three-fact structure. So I had truth back to back slander from Chris... And James, and you know, it's outrageous. Like, like a certain basketball player in a certain documentary, I took it personally. Uh, so, <laughs> so no space I th- jam. <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention that because I am oh. going to go back to my bread and butter this week, which means it's time okay. for another fact about a basketball movie, and I have chosen Space Jam. Uh, You're kidding me? The- <laughs> Not even a little bit. <laughs> None of this is rehearsed, folks. None of this is all spontaneous. I had no knowledge of it, uh, but I did write down Space Jam in an envelope earlier on. I'm just going to open it now for you. Was this your card? All right. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm on. You've already won. <laughs> by, by the way, um, what is it? What's your, what's your fact? What's your it's fact? Just that one of the, Space Jam is one of those movies which I loved growing up, and I watch it now, and it makes me nostalgic, but on a critical level, I'm just like, what was I smoking back in the day? Because it's not good. But no. one of but the things- were you smoking back in the day? <laughs> What age were you? Yeah, you were like five or six, right? I mean, come on. Thereabouts. It's actually my birthday next week. Anyone wants to get me a present? <clears throat> is it? Yeah. Oh, is, yes, it, it is. is it a big birthday or is it one of those kind of routine birthdays? Yeah, routine birthdays. Routine well, no, birthday? Well, so no, no birthday in one woman's life is routine. <laughs> let's just let's just say that right, right off the bat. Um, but one of the things that still holds up about Space Jam is that the soundtrack is amazing. And just, you know, to recap, it's got Seal, Fly Like an Eagle, it's got tracks from Coolio, Monica, Wolf for One, Salt and Pepper, Barry White. It's amazing. It went platinum six times. Uh, and Whoa. one of the tracks on that soundtrack is by a guy called Bugs Bunny. And one thing <laughs> I didn't know until recently is that that track was written by none other than Jay-Z, one of the greatest rappers <laughs> of all time. <laughs> Not even a little bit. And it's interesting because when I go back, when I went back and listened to the track after I found this out, I could sort of tell that it was Jay-Z. This is how the chorus goes. Who says the bunny can't rhyme? You're bugging. If bugs don't make you hop, you're bugging. Think the Space Jam can't stop? You're bugging. Eh, you'll be bugging. Who says the bunny can't jam? You're bugging. If you don't know who I am, you're bugging. Bugs ain't the coolest in the land. You're bugging. Eh, you'll be bugging. I remember oh, yeah. that song. <laughs> Jay-Z wrote that song. That song also, even though I love it completely, it does include a shout out of sorts to one Donald Trump, unfortunately. <gasps> it does. No. It does. That I don't yeah. remember. Yeah. But yeah, that track was written by Jay-Z, which I thought was amazing. That is my fact. Well, that is a strong start. 
a very strong start. So did he co-write it with Bugs Bunny? Were they in the same room together? What <laughs> what happened uh, there? We'll tell Unclear. you about that off mic, Chris, just for the kid's <laughs> sake. We'll explain what happened there. Okay. You mean a monsick? Is that what you, is that what you yeah. mean? To him? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, so he doesn't find out a Bugs Bunny isn't real. Because that, that would <laughs> what? really... What? What? Oh, God. That's what I oh, meant. Oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> Let's put the cat amongst the rabbits. The wabbits. Uh, the wabbits. <laughs> Waskily wabbit. Okay. For once, Amon has raised the bar fairly high <laughs> in the three-fact structure, folks. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Helen. Hi. Yes, I definitely was prepared for this and didn't just come up with this off the top of my head from some research I've been doing for something else. What However, page of your book is this from? <laughs> <laughs> it's not from the book. Um, but I was reading up this week about To Die For, uh, which was uh, Nicole Kidman's kind of real breakthrough in Hollywood terms. You know, she was obviously if we don't already count established. PMX bandits. Well, yeah, I mean, that was her first film role. And obviously, Dead Cam was her kind of international breakthrough out of Australia. And then she'd obviously worked with, you know, her husband, Tom Cruise, on, on a couple of films. and. They'd been fairly big and she'd done some work that was good. But To Die For was the one that kind of convinced people that she was more than Tom Cruise's wife, that she had serious, serious talent. And what's interesting about that is that she wasn't the first choice for the film at all. They wanted Meg Ryan. And Meg Ryan would have cost $5 million at the time. And they got Nicole Kidman for reportedly $2 million instead when Meg Ryan said no, because she was horrified by the amount of, you know, just bad behaviour of the character in the script. But it, it is really interesting because To Die For the movie is loosely inspired by a real life case of a woman who did get a much younger lover to try and murder her husband. She did. There was there was a real life case that inspired it. Um, but it was then novelised and fictionalised by Joyce Maynard, who wrote this novel To Die For in 1992, which had a central character, Susan Stone Moretto. And She's very kind of self-aware, this character, and she literally talks at one point in the novel about who should play her in a film version of her life. And what she says is that that actress that just got married to Tom Cruise would be ideal. Crazy, right? Wait so basically, you mean Nicole Kidman? I mean Nicole Kidman, and yet you she still wasn't the first choice for the role. Unbelievable. Despite wow. literally being ma- named in the book. So I just thought that was interesting. And was Bugs Bunny involved anywhere at all in this? <laughs> yes. Yes. Bugs Bunny played the role of Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wish that were the case. <laughs> <laughs> it would have made Joker a thousand percent better. <laughs> it, it would make a lot of Joaquin Phoenix movies a lot better. Um, would not watch. To dis, not to dis Joaquin Phoenix movies, or indeed Joaquin Phoenix, the man is a, a wonderful actor, And uh, but my God, some of those movies could do with a, a waskly wabbit, uh, if you ask me, but they're, oh, they're tough. Oh, they're tough. Anyway, yes, good fact. Good fact. Here we go. Jimbo. <laughs> well, you recall. Got, if you're playing the Jimbo drinking game at home, um, but none of those things are my fact. <laughs> Take a big old gulp. Take a big old swig. Actually, no, I'm keeping it quite svelte this week. I don't have uh, a, you know, a sort of smorgasbord of uh, factual appetizers before the main fact. In fact, I'm just <laughs> going to get straight into it for what? the first and, let's be honest, only time. Who are um, you, you and what have you done with James Christopher Dyer? <laughs> indeed. So remember some week. 
weeks, months, years. I honestly don't remember. Time is a flat circle. Um, but uh, we talked about The Rock, and I said I needed to come up with a fact for The Rock. Not Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, but obviously The Rock, the, the Michael rock, Bay the film, rock. the greatest Michael mm. Bay film ever made, yeah. admittedly. L- little bar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it is. Um, well, anyway, one of our one of our listeners, Andy Hart, sent me a message to say that he could help me out with this. He had a fact for The Rock, and he wanted to share it with me. And he he got this firsthand, apparently, by uh, one of the National Park Service guides on Alcatraz Island. So clearly an unimpeachable source. Now, uh, apparently, he, he thought it'd be commonly known, but it's not on the internet. I've not been able to verify this fact, so I'm using the word fact in inverted commas. But let's Bugs press Bunny on. escape oh, from Alcatraz. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Well... Okay, so a little bit of factual information. As Andy has pointed out, the cell doors on Alcatraz do not have locks with keys. Okay, they're not like that. They are opened by large levers in the guardhouses. You will, of course, remember this mm. because Sean Connery swings a bedsheet thing. Yeah. Indeed. And <laughs> obviously that would never have actually worked because they don't work quite that way. But let's, let's leave that. But they did pull a lever for one cell and there's another lever. And the combinations of levers would determine whether you open one cell or multiple cells or all the cells or all that kind of shit. Right. Okay, now you will remember in The Rock, General Francis X. Hummel, Ed Harris, locks hostages in the cells in Alcatraz. This is the worst tour ever, that kind of thing. So when they were locked in the cells, apparently during one take, or after one take, I should say, the cells would not unlock. And (laughs) the extras who were playing the hostages were apparently trapped in these cells, unable to get out. They tried multiple attempts to move the lever. Presumably, Sean Connery knitted a rudimentary rope out of a bedsheet and swung it to try and fix it. (laughs) That didn't hurt. But how, indeed, in the name of Zeus's butthole, were they to get out of their cells? So apparently, they exhausted every possible alternative here and put out an appeal on local radio in san francisco to find someone who could get these extras out of these cells and a retired locksmith who had worked at the prison uh, prior to its closure in the 60s apparently answered the call turned up and was able to fix the problem and get them out they had apparently been locked in these cells for nearly 12 hours by the time he got them out now now i it's very key that I tell you, this is less a fact than something someone on the internet told me. So I think it's important that you treat it in that way. I, so, I feel like there would be a paper trail. You know what I mean? There is a significant chance that Andy fucking made this shit up or that the Alcatraz guy he spoke to also made this shit up. So the word fact is being used a little loosely here. However, however, and I put it to you. None that of those things win. is my fact. None of these things are my fact. And it is, in uh, fact, no. My fact here is that I should win simply by virtue of the fact that this particular fact I gave you was not an 87-point fact. fact delivered in four, you know, oh, movements. Whoa, 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 so, whoa, whoa, whoa. No. By sparing so you, you like, I think I should win. No. So, yeah. what? You think yeah. you should be rewarded for your yes. habitual bad behaviour? It's like, like protection no. money, Helen. So no. this week I've chosen not to torture you. And if I win, then I will. that will reinforce this good behaviour in future. Whereas though. if I lose, I will think, oh, well, clearly the only way for me to win is to give you 15-minute long sprawling facts with oh my you know, God. pre-facts. James is the GOP in human form. <laughs> you are right, a disgrace. I'm, I'm, I'm gerrymandering the fact structure as we speak. <laughs> Don't bring gerrymandering into this. That man died for our sins. Love that man. Anyway, um, 
I wonder, Jimbo, if your rather public propensity for just taking facts that other people have sent you willy-nilly will one day lead to your demise. And that someone might just send you something that is so ridiculous and ridiculous? Ridiculous. So ridiculous. Ridiculous. ridiculous and uh, libelous that you uh, are hoist by your legal petard. Uh, I, I do wonder that. I have a I have a rock fact. I have a rock fact which I, I do actually have in the in the back of my brain, which is VX gas, which is the chemical weapon of choice in the rock. Uh, is shown as being in green pearl-like structure. It's actually mm-hmm. not green, it's amber in colour. Mm-hmm. So wow. if you ever see some amber VX guess, that's the real one that will kill you and the green one isn't. See, I rail against Jimbo for taking facts from other people. When he's left his own devices, that's the shit he comes up with. So <laughs> perhaps do slide into his DMs and do help him out, but maybe don't lead him down a, a libelous path because, you know, we don't want him to be sued within an inch of his life now, do we? Um, oh. However... I must say the facts are all in. The facts were good this week. Good facts. Well done, everybody. But the winner by a runaway margin this week is Mr. Amon Warman. Yes. Because he introduced both Jason Said and Bugs Bunny uh, into his fact. Your bug. Can't argue with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so well done. You narrow the gap. The fourth chair is closing back in on Jimbo and Helen. Join us next week. We'll see where the latest exciting installment of the three-fact structure will lead us. And now it's time to go straight into this week's listener question. It comes from at Fertility Fun, uh, who says, I'm really enjoying all the reminiscing that you've all been doing recently. Oh, do you remember that, guys, when we did all that reminiscing? Let's see what you did there. Wasn't that lovely? <laughs> really nice. And she asks, who was everyone's first famous interview and did you ever interview them again? And what was the least prepared... You've been for an interview, and did you wing it successfully? Wow. (laughs) Okay, so I did on my sort of first full day at Empire, not even my first full day, I went to the, covered the premiere of Peter Pan. So I got to talk to like Olivia Williams and Jason Isaacs, hello to him, and and people like that there, which was fun. But in terms of proper sit-down, one-on-one interview... I believe it was for that film that Nia Vardalos made after my Big Fat Greek Wedding, which was with Tony Collette and also David Duchovny. I don't remember the name of the film. I'm going oh to look God, it up. Oh my God, nor do I. Anyone? Yeah. And I talked to Nia Vardalos and David Duchovny and it was okay. It was fine. David Duchovny asked me to sing Suddenly Seymour to him, but I refused and yeah. regretted Why it ever since. Why did David Duchovny ask you to sing Suddenly Seymour to him? There was a, uh, we were talking about, uh, you know, we were talking about, I asked him about an, the X-Files movie, which I think was coming up at that point, the second one. And he suggested making it musical. And I said, that would be a great idea. And, you know, we could have, I suggested, I think he suggested or I suggested, I don't remember, Suddenly Scully. Connie and Carla was the film, of course. <laughs> Connie and Carla. Connie and Carla were Who two women, I think, pretend to be drag queens, if I remember oh. correctly. So yeah, exciting times. In terms of the least prepared I've been, it's probably when they sprang a Pierce Brosnan interview on me with five minutes notice uh, for wow. one of the Percy Jackson films. Um, but I, I had at least seen the film and talked to other people, so I had some basic questions to ask, but I had... Not a lot specifically prepared for him. So that was 2004. Your first big interview was 2004? Yeah, because I joined in December 2003. Interesting. Very interesting. And when we say big interview, what are we talking here? 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 oh, minutes? Oh, no, I'm not even, that's not even a big interview. That was like a you know short, I think, TV interview okay. um, at that point. But it was the first time I'd done an interview that wasn't a roundtable or a press conference or something like that, because that's what mm. we tended to get for the 
for the website in those days. All right. And have you interviewed him again? Let's, let's go through Myrtle's questions here. Myrtle is fertility fun, by the no, way. No, I have not, actually. And I would like to. He was fun. Okay. Uh, and who was the least, inter- inter- least prepared was Pierce Brosnan. Have you Pierce interviewed Brosnan. him since? No, that was the only time. Uh, he was a delight, though. He was really lovely. Yeah. Very big, like like broad-shouldered, kind of like Massive taller heat. than I expected. Huge yeah. heat. <laughs> yeah. Big lad. Yeah. I'm on. Uh, yeah, I remember the first person I spoke to doing this uh, was actually Mr. Denzel Washington, my favorite actor of all time. I remember because I at that time I still had like a full time job, uh, but I knew that this press conference was coming up. So I was like, look, if I work the entire day, the day before, can you give me the time off so I can go into London and uh, go to this press conference? And they said yes. So at that point, I was like, OK, there's no way I'm going and I'm not asking Denzel Washington the question. And I'd sort of be replaying it in my mind, thought of the question, uh, you know, but sort of psyching myself up for it because I hadn't sort of asked the question in the press conference before uh, at all. And uh, I remember he was late to the press conference, but nobody cared because it was Denzel and he's awesome. And he just, you know, came in and was immediately commanded the room. It was amazing. And I had my hand up for the entire sort of press conference, really, when they said to sort of open up the questions. And the guy, I think I was the second to last guy who asked the question. And my question was, your producer as well as an actor on this film, what made you want to become so involved? And I remember getting through the question okay without stuttering, but halfway through him answering the question, I was like, fuck, that's not watching and speaking to me. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> my face changed as he was answering the question. Um, but yeah, that was pretty awesome. What was the film? It was for Safe House. Um, yeah, uh, I think it was 2011, either 2011 or 2012. Uh, but it was right. a safe house, and there was a press conference with him and uh, the director, Daniel Espinosa. It was my second press conference because the first press conference was a Ghost Rider Spirit Avengers press conference nominated by some dude <laughs> called Chris Hewitt. Don't know. Uh, <laughs> I have literally no recollection of this. <laughs> yeah, it was with Nicolas Cage and yourself. Really? Yep. That was my first really? press conference. Yep. Genuinely <laughs> <laughs> don't remember that. <laughs> I think I still got the audio somewhere. Really? Yeah. I, wow. Okay. Some <laughs> of the press conferences I, I, I've hosted over the years are burned into my brain. And then every now and again, what I do when I wake up every morning, especially in the pandemic and I get all nostalgic, is I type the, the today's date into my phone and it brings up pictures that were taken on that day's date, you know, over the last few years. And one time a picture came up of a, a press conference for The Expendables 3 with <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, Jason Statham, Wesley Snipes, Liam Hemsworth, and a couple of other big, burly, bulky dudes as well. And there's me on the end of it. And I have no <laughs> recollection of that. How do you not have any recollection of that? I don't. Yeah, that's precisely it. This is a worrying development. How do I not remember that I did a press conference with Nick Cage? What the hell? That's wild. But who was the first? Uh, who was the first interview for you? Who was the first proper? Yeah. All right, I'm going to interview someone. Uh, doesn't have to have been for us. Don't worry about that. You can talk about <laughs> other outlets. It's fine as long as you don't mention by name. And you know, okay, I've got 20 minutes with this person. I've got 30 minutes with this person, or or even more. And I've got to prepare. Who was that person for you? According to the internet, um... according to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> It was uh, Drake DeRamus and Felicity Jones for Breathe In, 
Um, I did it for. Well, that's that's that, that's it. That's you. You've, you've peaked, and you should stop at that point. Yeah. Well, I remember that interview because uh, that film. I th- th- there's an element of Felicity Jones, Felicity Jones's character playing the piano in that film. So you know, I I was trying to be as unique as possible with my interview. So I bought like a little toy piano into the interview room, and I revealed it sort of like <laughs> as like the oh final God. question, like you know. What, I, I think I said something like, you know, what, what did you uh, play when you were younger? And, you know, and how did you find the piano playing scene? And I gave her the piano. And it's on YouTube. You can check. She, she plays the piano for a little bit, a little toy piano. Uh, but yeah, that was, I think, my first actual sit-down junket interview. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Have you interviewed her since? I have not. No. Uh, but okay. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Let's make that happen again. All right. <laughs> and what was the least prepared you've ever been? And one woman doesn't go into an interview not prepared. That's just not. <laughs> <laughs> one woman does not simply walk into Mordor. <laughs> I genuinely can't remember because I was probably annoyed at myself and 86, the memory from my mind, uh, hmm. where I ever to have gone into an interview. Yeah, like me hosting a press conference with Nicky Cage. What happened to that press conference? I blocked it from my memory. Uh Jimbo. Jimbo. Now, Jimbo, little insight uh, into Jimbo here. Uh, he is a man who is, It may. this may strike you as strange, but he is meticulous about his preparation. Mm. And uh, if Jimbo has less than a week's notice on an interview, it sends him into sort of paroxysms of fear and uh, it gives him the shits. Uh, so I would imagine you've... Have you ever winged an interview? Have you ever done that? I have had to. Yeah, my process is very much like I like to become an absolute expert in every aspect of that person's life. I like to stalk <laughs> them for a minimum of six months. I like to pose as members of their family and go to gatherings. You know, I like to <laughs> like really- sometimes wearing your skin. <laughs> Indeed. I like to immerse myself in their lives, live in their walls for as long as possible. And then when I do the interview, I like to go in without set questions and just discuss using the knowledge I have amassed the issue. That is how I prefer to do it where possible. Not always possible, mm-hmm. but that's the way I like to do it. The, the one that I had to wing the most was just the random one. I mentioned it on this podcast before, which was uh, which was Mike Medavoy, producer of The Sixth Day. Uh, mm. And I was doing the pressing of The Sixth Day, and I had a 10-minute interview with Mike Medavoy. And as I went through and they went, excellent, you have an hour. And I was and I, I, had, I was like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Because I'd done very little prep for this, and I, it, it was just... One of, I mean, I remember this in vivid Technicolor because it was one of the most excruciating experiences of my life. Just, I, I clearly run out of questions. I was asking him things like, "Have you seen any good films recently?" And he was like, no. and "I was like, oh yeah." Has Arnold? <laughs> just, and it got to the point where, and this is where he just looked at me, and went, "We're done, aren't we?" I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> we kind of are." I'm sorry. I think I kept it going for maybe 25 minutes, half an hour, but I was like, there's just, I can't do an hour of small talk with anyone. <laughs> with the producer of the sixth day. I can attest to this. Yeah, it was, it was not good. I, I, I should say that I have had a similar experience. So there was one point when uh, a PR that, I'm not going to say who the star was in this case, because it's because they were 15 at the time and that's where the problem lies, right? So this uh, this PR who we know and like basically called up the office one day and was like, look, we're trying to fill this person's time and it's a challenge because nobody knows who they are yet. And, you know, but they're, they're in town. We know you've seen the film. Can you come along and do an interview? And I'm like, oh, I mean, okay, we can, you know, it was, it was not a bad performance in that film. I can come along. We can talk to that person. But like, I do not have a lot to ask them about because they're 15. It's their first film. Oh, clue. 15. 
15. Uh, I, you know, you've, it, it, I can do 10 minutes, but like, I cannot do a lengthy interview. Like, this is mm-hmm. not, there's just not enough there, there. And, and, and teenagers, mm-hmm. God bless them, you know, often don't have a lot of extra stuff to say because they haven't had all these experiences yet and they haven't done a lot of other work. So, um, I went in, the person was perfectly nice. Um, but the PR left me in there for 25 minutes and I just had enough questions for 10 because the person's answers were very short because they were young and, you know, weren't used to wanging on endlessly like we all do. So uh, I, I literally had to, off the top of my head, start asking them pint of milk questions because <laughs> that was all you I could never think ask of a to fill the time. You hairy their asses, Helen. That's <laughs> thoroughly inappropriate. When was the last time you were naked outdoors? Please! Yeah, I was, I was going more with the what's the biggest dog you've ever seen kind of ones. You know, we have, we have, a, we have a variety of, of pint of milk questions. But, but yeah, that was, that was horrific. That was absolutely horrific. But this is my nightmare. Like socially maladroit as I am, like being in an interview situation and not having questions is the quite. That's the equivalent for me of like you know the dream where you're naked in a public place. Like for me, it's being in an interview and not having prepared for fifteen hours beforehand. That's my nightmare. I just can't even. Like I mean, I've mentioned before. Like my first day, I started at Empire, and I think I think it was May two thousand. <laughs> it was a while ago, and my first day, I interviewed Stephen Frears and Samantha Morton which was terrifying in different ways. Samantha Morton, who I think I've mentioned, she literally walked away in between questions. I looked up and she'd gone. So that was May in, I think, I want to say it was August of that year. I interviewed Angelina Jolie for uh, uh, Gone in 60 Seconds um, because I did the premiere for that and Brad Pitt at the Snatch premiere as well. I mean, the red carpet ones, it was like a handful of questions, but I was still very much kind of making the shit up as I went along. But weirdly also, I think it was the year after that, I covered the Bridget Jones premiere. And I remember I spoke to Kira Knightley because she turned up. So um, Thora Birch was at the premiere and Kira Knightley came as a guest because they were filming the whole together. But Kira Knightley had been in literally nothing. Like no one knew who she was. I remember having she was fucking 15. That's how old I am. Um and I remember talking to the two of them on the red carpet and then heard them becoming very famous very soon after that, which was quite mm-hmm. random. In fact, I think it was actually at that premiere party that she got offered either the Pirates role or the Prime and Prejudice role. I can't remember which one it was, but it was a big role. Oh, she it would actually, have been Pirates first. Pirates yeah. So first. she was discussing mm-hmm. that at the premiere party. I think she met the producer and they they talked about it then. So it was a, a big night. Big night for her in many ways. She met me and got off the role of a lifetime. Wow. So, you know. Coincidence, I think not. James, in two months, your empire career will be old enough to drink in America. It's just so depressing, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Look at us. <laughs> All right, Paul Rudd. Who would have thought? Not Who me. Who would have thought? <laughs> no, really not me. I thought I'd been fired a long time ago. Uh, my first proper interview for Empire, as in the first proper one I had to sit down for. My first day at Empire was the Empire Awards 2001, as I said, on a recent show. And uh, I interviewed a whole bunch of people. Uh, as I've said, the League of Gentlemen were there that day. Uh, I almost said the League of Extraordinary <laughs> yeah. Gentlemen were there that day. They weren't. Very different group, yeah. They weren't. Although Fleming might have been in the room, so <laughs> you never know. I'm sure I interviewed some Rings people. I interviewed Brian Singer that day as well, uh, which I was very nervous about. Um, but the first proper interview was Sam Neill. I think I've said this oh, again before, uh, where uh, I was given 45 minutes on the phone with Sam Neill and I was staying with some friends in London whilst I was trying to get a place of my own and they had a spare room for a while. And I just remember being so, so nervous, cripplingly nervous. And I prepared to an extent that I have 
seldom prepared since. <laughs> um, I, I, had, I knew everything about him. I was a bit like you, Jimbo. I knew everything about him. And uh, it helped that I was a, a fan already. And, uh, you know, knew he had the Northern Irish connection and all that sort of stuff. And he was Damien in Omen 3. And obviously he's Dr. Weir and Nefento Ryzen and all that stuff. And uh, But even so, I was still really, really nervous. And he was so nice. Mm. It was 45 mm -hmm. minutes. And I'm sure I've said this before in the podcast, but as um, as I finished the interview, I said, well, Sam, thanks so, so much indeed. I've got to let you go now. And he went, good man. He just said, good man, like that. And I have used that phrase ever since. Uh, I, it's just embedded itself in my head. And so I, I constantly say, you know, good man to people if they have done something worthy of praise. And have I interviewed Sam since? Yes, I have multiple times. And I have held press conferences with him. And I do remember those and done on-stage Q&As and interviewed him for the podcast. And uh, every single time he is just the nicest. Yeah. Loveliest guy, and not always. I think the most comfortable with being interviewed over the years. But one of the great things about being in the job as long as we have been <laughs> is that I think you've begun to see him enter this kind of elder statesman phase of his career, where he's really, really more comfortable with himself and saying things in interviews and being a little bit more open. And he has that lovely dry wit, and he's such a, a well-read, well, a very learned gentleman as well. So. It's always a delight and a pleasure to interview the great Sam Neill. What was the least prepared you went into an interview and did you wing it successfully? All of them. And did I wing it successfully? Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> to greater or lesser extent. I don't know that you can ever go into an interview prepared enough. No. But also, over the years, my attitude towards this has changed a little bit. Sometimes I'll go into an interview and I'll just kind of rely on stuff and, and just hope that we can have a conversation. And that's what interviews for me, especially in the podcast, should be. They should be just conversations. And then sometimes you go into it ultra mega prepared and you've done two, three days of research and you've watched all their movies and you've 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 really become them for a while. You've you've gone <laughs> you've gone full Will Graham in, <laughs> in Manhunter just just for a little while. And then there's sometimes where maybe there's time pressures or maybe an interview just gets thrust into your lap. This has happened a number of times to me over the years. I remember when I was first starting at Empire, John Foyt, I got a chance to interview John Foyt on 15 minutes notice. And that wow. was lucky because it was a public access interview. So all the questions had been sent in by readers. Um, but the interview suddenly happened without warning. And it was a Friday night and nobody wanted to do it. And I was young and inexperienced and keen and naive. And I just went, I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, I was trying to show that I was good at stuff um, and that, you know, please keep me around after my probation period is over. And uh, and I ended up on the phone with John Foyt. Uh, but there was a recent one, uh, who's, and this person's name shall never escape my lips, on the record anyway, where I was like, They brought it forward by four hours. I hadn't done my prep. I hadn't done my research. Uh, and I barreled into what was a phone interview. And it was a phone interview with a delay. And those things are the worst. Yep. They're the absolute oh, worst. Gosh. You can't get any rapport going, even if you guys would click normally in an in-person interview. You know, I did one last night with a three-second delay, which we got, we got around eventually. And it was okay. But this one was not good. And also, sometimes you can tell the way an interview is going to go in the first 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, based on, hey, how are you? And based on their response, based on their tone of voice, based on how long that response is, sometimes you know that it's just going to be 
trouble. And <laughs> in this case, I went, hey, how's it going? And I got a, hey. And I was like, <laughs> oh, boy. oh, no, uh, this is not good. Yeah. And so it was a combination of me not being that well prepared, interview being brought forward. If it had happened four hours later, it would have been fine, maybe. But yeah, wasn't good. Wasn't yeah. good. And it's one of those things where, you know, over the years, I've, I think, oh, you know, sometimes, guys, I think I'm a pretty decent interviewer. And then every now and again... You get one comes of those. University yeah. And just yeah. go. You know what? Fuck you. You're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You really do. There, there are also times when you feel like you're going to going into an interview pretty well prepared, and you know someone with the attitude that you just described, Chris, will just the answers will be so short, and yeah. Yeah. all of a sudden mm-hmm. you think that you have sort of you know you've prepared quite well, you've over prepared that you're going to have too mm-hmm. many questions. All of a sudden as you can continue to go through your questions and the yeah. answers just are completely short and one note and even, yeah. even yeah. if you follow yeah. up, it's still short and one note yeah. is like, I'm going to run out of questions. You're seven minutes into a 25 minute interview and you've <laughs> yeah. run through all your questions. Yeah, I've, I've, had a, yeah. I've had a couple of those recently with people who shall remain nameless, which have been yeah. just like, yeah. uh... Yeah, and those are tricky though. because when I started this job, I, it was very much you ask the questions are on the paper and you go in prepared. And there are interviews where I have sometimes a page, two pages of, of questions. Mm. Mm. And some, sometimes you can get a bit too caught up in that, a little bit too caught up in box ticking, a little bit too caught up in, okay, that person has now stopped talking. Now I will ask this next question that's on my list. And sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes you, you've been given a brief by your editor or, or whomever. And you have to ask specific questions. But over the years, and especially I think because of the podcast, I've kind of come around to the idea that interviews should by and large be conversations. And sometimes it can be detrimental to go in too overprepared. It depends what you're doing the interview for, though, doesn't it? Like a podcast, as you say, it's conversational because you're just filling time and trying to entertain. If you're doing like a written piece... Filling time, how dare you? (laughs) I've heard your interviews. Uh, (laughs) You know, if you're doing a thing for the magazine, if you're doing a a written piece, then you've got a clear angle and 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 something like Mm. you need certain questions answered. There's bits of information you fundamentally have to have. And that adds a layer of stress because you think, right, I've got this amount of time. I fundamentally cannot write my piece unless I get you talking about the following nine things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes... Yeah. If one of them gets covered off and they just gloss over it, you're like, I really need to go back to that because I don't have enough. Yeah. Uh, and you're thinking like, this is my opening, this is my ending. Like you're almost planning a feature while you're doing the interview. So that does add a layer of complication yeah. to it all. But yeah, but it is important to be flexible enough to actually listen as well. Yes, because, of course. You know, that, that's what, what one of the things I think Chris is talking about, Will, where somebody will just drop into the conversation. Yeah. And that's why I signed up to play Batman. And you're, you're like, go, yeah, okay, great. So <laughs> tell me about question with so-and-so. <laughs> yeah. 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 Instead of going, wait, what? That's not... That's yeah. not out there. <laughs> I mean, we've all done it where you've been transcribing an interview and you'd be like, I cannot believe I let that sail pass because I was so yeah. busy yeah. thinking about what that, my yeah. follow-up question was. <laughs> yeah. I didn't listen to what they said. Was it William Goldman said? No one knows anything. And that very, very much <laughs> applies to our interviewing technique. <laughs> anyway, enough of a walk down memory lane. Uh, although I will say, once the pandemic ends, if people are listening to this, I am available to host press conferences. I may <laughs> even remember them. <laughs> So do please get in touch. But if you want to get in touch with us to have a question read out in the Emperor podcast, and you can get in touch via really one method and one method only at the moment, which is Twitter. I am at Chris Hewitt and you can slide into my DMs 
uh, or you could just reply to any tweet that I do or wait for a panicked shout out every now and again, as Fertility Fun did much to her cost. I hope you enjoyed that reminiscing Fertility Fun. Well, there's more where that came from, for sure. And now it is time for this week's first guest. And here's a test of my interview technique now. <laughs> see, how, see how this holds up after that little uh, burst of reminiscing. Uh, because this is our chat with Matthew Modine, the great Matthew Modine. He's been on the podcast before. He came into the studio a few years ago when he was over promoting his excellent app, the Full Metal Jacket Diary, which I think is still available on iPads, which is basically his account of the making of Full Metal Jacket, complete with um, pictures that he took on set at the time with a picture with a camera that I believe Stanley Kubrick himself gave him. Great app. Uh, he is back. He's been kind of one of Hollywood's Mr. Dependables for so long. He really burst onto the scene in the 1980s with things like Birdie and Full Metal Jacket and Married to the Bob. And the 90s, he had success in the likes of Pacific Heights, shortcuts. Cutthroat Island maybe maybe capsized his career a little bit, as I think he would admit, uh, but he's been working steadily for the last few years and he is back in Wrong Turn, which is the seventh Wrong Turn movie, but is the latest in this sort of series of horror reboots slash sequels, which share the same name as the first entry in the franchise. And for my money, it, it was really, really surprisingly good. And uh, he plays the father of a young girl who uh, disappears after she goes backpacking with some friends in uh, in mountains, in the mountains, and she falls afoul of some people who shall we say, live in those mountains. And you, know, you may think you know where this movie's going. You don't entirely know where this movie's going. This is, uh, for my money, a very, very decent reboot of the franchise indeed. Uh, and Matthew Modine is very, very good in it. And uh, I got the chance to talk to him on Zoom or Squadcast. I think it might have been Squadcast a few weeks ago. I had a blast. The man is good talking. Here we go. Me talking to Matthew Modine. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the star of Wrong Term, Mr. Matthew Modine. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. I'm in Greenwich, not a million miles away from, I guess, where you shot Full Metal Jacket. Uh, yeah, the Isle of Dogs, Wapping. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I, I understand that it's uh, uh, quite a expensive piece of real estate now. The, the financial center has moved down there. It has, yes. Yeah, I can. I look out of my window and I can see Canary Wharf and the Isle of Dogs and the huge skyscrapers that are, are yeah. under construction and it, the financial heart of the city. And it's a beautiful thing. Quite different than the than the shithole that, that I filmed in. For We were there for, at, at Becton Gasworks for almost a year, it felt like. And then, and then we moved into a little uh, warehouse where we did the interior of the boot camp and then out to Basingbourne Airfield. And then uh, we did just a bit on stage at Pinewood Studios, you know, uh, where the, the interior of the building where the sniper was, where she gets shot. Yeah. That was on a stage at Pinewood. So do you, uh, do you have fond memories of, because I know looking back at the time for Metal Jacket wasn't a wasn't a great experience at times for you but over the over the years i know that you're very very fond of it but so looking back do you do you think fondly of of london and that time yeah absolutely i mean it, it's funny that where they say time heals all wounds <laughs> so yeah the 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 scars are things that you can talk about now that you kind of have a giggle about they weren't so funny maybe at the time but 
Um, I'm very grateful to having had the opportunity to work with Stanley Kubrick, uh, not just to, to work on the film set with him, but to spend time with him in his home and have dinners with him and and uh, see the world through his lens, you know, because we we grew up on other side, opposite sides of the Mississippi River. He grew up in New York City, uh, in the Bronx, and I'd grown up. My father was a drive-in theater manager in California and Utah, and so our our lives were so different from one another. And you know, so he was very curious about about my childhood and my 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 young adult life, and as I was about his and. Um, so, you know, because they were, they were, we were so different, you know, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was life altering. It was an absolute mm. life altering experience. Mm. And, uh, and you're on set right now. You're on, on, on obviously a very different set, but where, where are you at the, at the moment? What's, what's, this is the thing they make you sign non-disclosure agreements today. And, you know, I can't even tell you what state I'm in. <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, existential state or the actual physical state that you're in? Both existential and physical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm in North America. <laughs> <laughs> Let's narrow it down a bit. Well, I hope it's yeah. going well. How How is yeah. whatever you're shooting, the experience of shooting in a pandemic, how are you finding that? Well, I just finished another project uh, for Netflix that uh, I was playing Rick Singer, the, the fellow that was in that, that was taking all the money from the rich people to get their kids into college. Uh, it was a kind of big scandal story over here. Um, the Felicity Huffman situation. Yeah, yeah. So we we started. We were supposed. I was. I went in for a wig fitting on. Uh, Saturday and we were supposed to start filming Monday and that's when they shut the business down and so we got shut down for three three months something I don't know something like that and then we went back to work and all of these protocols that were put into place you know where you come you you get tested five days before uh, three times five mm -hmm. days so uh, like let's say it was a Monday Wednesday and a Friday and then when you start production, every day when you come in, they, they take your temperature. And then again, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, they would do uh, a, a physical test. You know, I'm putting my finger in my nose uh, uh, where they take a swab of both of your nostrils and off you go. You start, you start working with gloves. You know, for the crew, they're always wearing gloves and masks and, and uh, sometimes face shields, goggles. It's weird. It's it's weird to have made an entire film, and I I won't be able to identify any of the people that worked on the film because all I all I saw was their eyes. I'll I'll run into them on the street and not know who they are in the future. Oh my god! Cause, I, yeah, because uh, usually I would imagine that being on set, you form fast friendships with with fellow cast members, with fellow crew members as as well. But this must be a very different experience. Must be a lot of isolation here, where you, you can't hang out, even if you wanted to. Yeah, that's why I'm in this room here, uh, because it's the only place I'm allowed to be on the stage uh, with without a mask on. You know, when you when you want to get a drink of water, have a cup of coffee, that would be normal if you were on a film set to drink a cup of coffee. Now you have to go off outside and go have a have a drink of water, have a cup of coffee because you can't. You can't take your mask off on the stage and you, they, they, for some reason, they, they're, they, I guess when you drink, you aspirate a lot that it's, it's, they say it's kind of like coffee when you drink. 
Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, I got your lunch for you. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right, cheers. Thanks. Can I get you something? No, no, I'm fine. Thank you. <clears throat> sorry. Right. Uh, it's lunch. It's, it's lunch time. See, that's another thing. I'm not allowed to go have lunch with anybody. I don't. I don't. I have to eat separate from everybody. You don't have any social aspect uh, on a, on the film set. They bring you. Uh, a little, uh, I'll show you a, a little box of food. Okay, it has my, it has my name on it. It's got some English peas, beets, and rice. <laughs> yeah. So Is it, if it's warm enough, you should probably eat it, and we can we can we can always no. we can always <laughs> navigate right. that. Okay. It'll be all right. Excellent. But I, I guess this situation, weird as it is beats the alternative, which is not working at all. And in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when this when this first began, I spoke to so many actors who were unsure what the future would hold. Well, what sort of boat were you in back in the, the early days of the pandemic? Did you think you might that, that might be it for a while for you in terms of working? I did because I had, for the first time in my my career, I knew what I was doing for the next two years, which was, which was weird uh, to you know, because there's so so much uncertainty about your job. I, I don't care if you're Anthony Hopkins or Julia Roberts or Tom Hanks. That when you finish a job, you always think, "Oh, that's it. They're gonna they I'm gonna get sussed out. They're gonna know that I'm a big fake and I suck, and they and I'll never work again." The, every actor goes through that fear when you finish a project that you'll never work again. And uh, so I had two years mapped out and it was like, what? This is the first time in all these, all these years of working. I was going to do uh, a, a film and then a film and then a, a show and then go on to Broadway for about seven months. Oh, and wow. everything disappeared. Everything stopped. Uh, and because financially for productions it's very expensive to do all these protocols you know everybody wearing masks those masks in the united states i think that they're about four dollars a piece so if you have a crew of 70 people you know you just have to do the math and say oh my god where are we going to get the money to do all these safety protocols to do the the swab test three times a week with 70 people working on the film um the gloves the you know all the things that that have to be put in place to make uh, make the environment safe for mm. people to work is it's really weird then you go on the set and you're rehearsing with your mask on you don't know who anybody on the set is because as i say you they're wearing masks and goggles and face shields so the environment that used to be such a kind of a, 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 a strong sense of community and 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 working together to create something magical uh, is now saddled and burdened with all these kind of protocols that that uh, that hinder the creative process. It, it may, I won't say it, it destroys it, but it certainly yeah. changes it. So you had that a situation then as well of back at the beginning, you have this two years of work and suddenly it disappears overnight. Um, how did you fill the void? What what did you do? Uh, did, do? Did you get creative? Were you turned to arts and crafts? <laughs> what was it for you? The good thing was, and I, and I say this with all sincerity, is that you begin to realize that you need much less in life to get by, that what's what you what you become aware of, and I think that you and your listeners will agree, is what's really important is your health, uh, the relationships that you have, the, how valuable those things are, your friendships, 
and all of the the material things in life is just stuff you know that that it's just stuff they're the things you know that make your life more comfortable having a nice motor to be able to get from one place to another it's nice but it's not necessary and so as an environmentalist as a lifelong environmentalist i was really hopeful that people would begin to realize that that this uh uh wanton overconsumption of the earth's resources uh w- will become less and less necessary and it, of course the absolute opposite happened and everybody's like amazon is making a fortune and the the amount of garbage that amazon generates from you know you order something that's as big as a ballpoint pen and it comes in a box as big as a uh, you know uh, you you've seen the packaging uh, yeah. and the packaging that yeah. the packaging that's inside the packaging it's uh, you know why can't we just go to the apple store and buy a phone why do we need to get all the box and all the, the you know i mean it's yeah, it's crazy box. yeah the box inside the box inside the box inside the wrapping it's it's ridiculous and so i was hopeful that we might create a more sustainable planet and of course the opposite's happened then when you think of all the waste of the masks even the vaccines if we're giving you know 200 million uh vaccines in the united states or think of all those hypodermics and the little bottles of of uh, a vaccine that, that it's all going to go in the bin it's all going to go into landfill and here's the thing when i go to speak to kids at college or, or elementary schools not colleges elementary schools and junior high schools the first question i ask them when you have something that you don't want what do you do with it and they say you throw it away i say good can somebody tell me where away is <laughs> there is no way there is no, no way. way yeah yeah uh obviously i want to talk about wrong turn as well i have to i have to say that when i first heard they were rebooting wrong turn i did kind of roll my eyes a little bit but this is actually a really pleasant unpleasant surprise because it's quite gory uh it's surprising in all the right places got a good character work um and it's not quite the same as the previous parts did you have the same reaction when a script called wrong turn came your way yeah i i was familiar with the franchise i wasn't i i wasn't somebody who who went to see those kind of movies because i i just don't it, you know i i kind of feel like i saw all those movies at my father's drive-in i had my fill of them <laughs> and 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 uh, but when i told my my kids my son and my daughter about it they they were so excited because they really loved the wrong turn franchise and they said you got to do it you got to do it and i understood uh my my role because because i have children you know I, my, and if anybody did something to harm my daughter or if she went missing you know i'd do everything in my power and you know with my last drop of blood trying to find her and protect her as as most parents and fathers and mothers would so um i understood what my responsibility and what my role in the movie was uh because of my love of my children and and um uh, so that was it was a easy role to to jump into and and play and then and then it's just fun you know it's just it's got as you say it's got those jump scares and and uh you know i snuck some things into the movie that that weren't weren't there and you know i i had a good time and liam neeson is 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 probably my best mate as uh, a you know in the acting profession mm-hmm. i don't i don't get to say 
I will find you and I will kill you. But, you know, which is sort of has become his catchphrase. Uh, but, you know, he's 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 had a good time the last 10 years making these kind of punch up movies, you know, and yeah. and, you know, it's there, there's and I again, you know, as I said, my dad was a drive in theater manager and I grew up loving those kind of movies, you know, seeing yeah. the Clint Eastwood movies, you know, go ahead make my day and you know i know what you're thinking punk did i shoot five <laughs> shots or did i shoot six but being that this is a 357 magnum the most powerful handgun in the world you better ask yourself <laughs> do you feel lucky punk you know that in dirty harry it was i mean I, most kids that grew up watching that movie memorized uh clint eastwood's lines yeah that what you know we, we you know hasta la vista baby uh, you know, all those all those tough guy roles that they, they get those great, you know, get those great lines. It's just fun. You know, it, it, it's it's I think you'd be lying if you said you were an actor and and didn't want to have a moment like, you know, with some great James Bond kind of line. Sean Connery would have said or, you know, I'm, if you asked Anthony Hopkins, I bet he'd say he wish he could play James Bond. <laughs> Good I point. I bet he would. I bet he uh, would. He'd be a great Bond villain as well, though, it has to be said. Uh, did you ask uh, Liam for advice on, on how to kick ass and take names? I mean, you've, you've done that before on the big screen in the past, of course, but Liam's had more recent experience. No, and if I asked him, he wouldn't give it to me. He'd say, <laughs> oh, Matthew, Matthew, just, you know, just do your best, you know. <laughs> <laughs> try not to trip. Try not to trip over the furniture and hit your mark. <laughs> <laughs> advice. Advice to live by. Obviously, you had. Uh, you're behind an app, the Full Metal Jacket Diary app. You're using your pictures of the making of Full Metal Jacket. Do you chronicle all the movies that you're on? Is that something? That you, or was it just something that happened on Full Metal Jacket? Um, No, on Full Metal Jacket, I had the gift of time that you don't normally have on a film set where, you know, I I was with Stanley Kubrick for almost two years working on Full Metal Jacket. Mm. And somebody had gifted me that medium format Roloflex camera and not to carry on the set and take pictures, but just to teach myself how to use it. And then when I met Stanley, to show him that I had an understanding of photography, you know, to honor him and his past of when he was a 35 millimeter photographer for Look, I think it was Look Look Magazine. Mm. And uh, I just fell in love with that camera. You know, the, the, the format, the square format, the large negative. And, and uh, it, it, was, it was just, I, I felt like I couldn't take a bad picture with that camera. So I, I carried it onto the set, and when I had opportunities to to photograph what was going on, I just pull it out of my flak jacket when we were in Vietnam, or out of my bootlock, you know, the Footlocker when mm-hmm. we were in boot camp, and and snap some photographs. But because I was playing a journalist, it made sense to I had a diary that I was carrying to make notes uh, as a character, and I thought, well, I just keep notes about what's going on on the film set. And so the thing that's good about the Full Metal Jacket Diary is that it's not me today reflecting upon the experience of working with Stanley Kubrick and because it would be very different. You know, I'd be seeing the world through rose-colored glasses if I wrote about the experience today. Yeah. But what, what you have is the world seen through 
a 24, 25 year old kid working with arguably one of the greatest filmmakers ever mm-hmm. uh, and, and documenting that experience. So the, the, na- the diary is sometimes very naive. Sometimes it's, uh, it's, you, it exposes my vulnerability and, uh, and obviously the frustrations of, of working on the film. It's a shame, though, that you know you you know, you you haven't repeated repeated it since. I would love to see a so I don't know a, a Cutthroat Island uh, diary or <laughs> even even a even a Wrong Turn diary. That'd have been fun, for, you know, because I imagine you shot it in some interesting places. I did keep a diary on Cutthroat Island, and and I did photograph it. But that the the release of Cutthroat Island, which I really love, I love the movie. I think it was released too early. I don't think people were ready for a female protagonist. Uh, hero, you know, putting uh, Gina Davis into, you know, Errol Flynn's boots, kind of, let's say, uh, as a pirate, um, they just weren't ready for it. And the movie was so viciously attacked. But I had a great time making the movie, um, you know, learning to sword fight and swing from, you know, mast to mast. And um, I, I just I had a really good time making the movie. It was it doesn't mean it wasn't a, it was an easy movie to make. It was mm-hmm. a, a lot of uh, frustrations and uh, stupid things that happened on the set. But but I had a good time. On that note, as you're enjoying your your peas and your rice and your beets, Matthew Modine, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Peace. Good to see you again. Okay, so that was Matthew Modine, and now it is time to barrel straight into the movie news section. Uh, the Golden Globes happened. Let's talk about that very very quickly. Mm, well done to everybody who won one, and commiserations <laughs> to everybody who didn't. Chloe <laughs> <laughs> Zhao, yay! <laughs> so I'm kind of torn on the Golden Globes because, on the one hand, awards do matter, and uh, especially for uh, people of color, like uh, like a Chloe Zhao, like a Nomadland, and there's a lot of people who uh, who I'm a fan of who won awards in the night. I think about Andrew Day, for example, but. The Golden Globes have long been a problematic awards body, and especially in the light of some of the revelations that have come out over the past few weeks, it's just hard to take it seriously uh, anymore on any level. Um, mm. And there's just oh, welcome so- to the club. <laughs> no, 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 no. I've, I've been there for a while, but like yeah. this year especially has just been ridiculous. Um, some of the embarrassing sort of things that have come to light um, when it comes to sort of their lack of uh, black critics in the critical body, but even in just in terms of who's getting nominated for awards and who isn't getting nominated for awards, the fact that Michaela Cole, I May Destroy, has not been nominated huh. is embarrassing. The fact that there are a number of incredible black ensembles um, in the likes of The Five Bloods, uh, for instance, who have not been nominated is embarrassing. And I could go on and on and on. I just don't know if any of the changes which are being proposed um, can really do enough to change that awards body in a really big way, That which is what needs to happen at this point. It just feels like everything that's being suggested is just going to be cosmetic. Um, and, you know, in today's world, really, it's just, it's hard. I, I wish that people weren't paying so much attention to it and um, to uh, sort of give it the platform that it has. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing. I think it's good that people are paying attention finally to the makeup of that group of voters 
the tiny number of that group of voters and the limitations that that gives you. And I think maybe the thing to do is for, I mean, basically they're sustained right now by the fact that they have a big TV deal because obviously not this year, but generally speaking, the Golden Globes is an extremely star-studded event. It's an extremely entertaining event in the sense that, you know, people get very drunk and say funnier things than they do at the Oscars. <laughs> and it's, you know, it has survived for that reason. If I were the SAG Awards right now, I'd be calling all of the TV stations, but particularly NBC that broadcast the Globes and saying, look, our, you know, our attendance has only increased in recent years. More and more people are coming. More and more people are treating this as a big deal. Why don't we sign a big deal with you? And why don't we stop you know, funding the Golden Globes, essentially. Yeah. To be clear, when I was saying that about attention, I was talking about that in terms of, mm. uh, you know, we should stop paying attention to the Golden Globes and start uh, sort of giving deals to people like SAG Awards and others who pay more attention to the merit of the art as opposed to the star-studdedness of an event. Hey, speaking of star-studded, George Clooney and Julia Roberts are doing a rom-com. I feel like it's like 1996. I'm so excited. <laughs> this is great. What's it called? Oceans 2. <laughs> it's called Ticket to Paradise, uh, which is apparently we'll see them playing a divorced couple that team up and travel to Bali to stop their daughter from making the same mistake they think they made 25 years before. So, you know, it sounds a bit the awful truthy that, you know, there's a couple who get divorced and then realize, oh my God, we were so in love all along. So I'm super here for that. That could be really fun. Yeah, that'll be nice. It's been a while since they've done a bit of fluff like this, isn't it? Mm, love a yeah. rom-com. Well done, them. Well yeah. done, George Clooney and Julie Roberts. I'm always here for the plucky underdogs. <laughs> I'm kind of stuck on your Oceans 2 suggestion, Chris. I want to watch that. Would watch <laughs> to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm here for that. Uh, I, I'm also here for, uh, and I know this isn't going to be a laugh a minute, it's not going to be a laugh riot. Hold on to your sides, people. I'm also here for Christian Bale and Scott Cooper reuniting. <laughs> and I know, I mean, yes, I know, I know, but... It's going to be so miserable, they've made, but... They've made two movies together and they were both excellent. Were they? they I mean, yes, they out were. Out of the Furnace, I out thought Out of the was Furnace is excellent. Hostiles oh, no. is excellent. Hostiles is pretty good. And uh, I am very cautiously excited about <laughs> their third movie together, The Pale Blue Eye, uh, which is an adaptation of a novel by Louis Bayard. And it's uh, going to be set in 1830, and it revolves around a series of murders that take place at the US Military Academy at West Point. And Bale is a veteran detective investigating the murders. He teams up with a young cadet by the name of... Dun, dun, dun. <gasps> it's a strange name for a cadet. No, sorry, I misread that. Edgar... Alan Poe, yes. So wow. this could be this could be fun. I, I like the way that Scott Cooper, he he flits, doesn't he, from genre to genre, and he says this is going to be his attempt at a big old who done it, a big old period who done it, and mm. I cannot wait for his knockabout sex comedy next. <laughs> <laughs> Love me a who done it, and I could do with one to tide me over until Knives Out two comes out. Mm, <laughs> Knives Out. So good. This is news that broke last week just as the podcast went up because of course. Uh, but it appears that there is a new version of Superman in development at Warner Brothers with Tanahisi Coates writing it, JJ Abrams producing it, uh, and the word in the street is indeed that this will be a, a black Superman story, which yeah. is very interesting and exciting. What was her take on this one, folks? 
very excited because, um, uh, yeah, uh, we could really use a good Superman movie right now. And I think mm-hmm. in recent years, I've said this before, we just haven't got that because the script, I don't think, has been quite there for Henry Cavill. And um, by the way, if we do get a black Superman, I do think, you know, DC is full sw- is in full swing with the multiverse right now. I don't think this rules out uh, Henry Cavill returning to the role no. somewhere down the line. Um, but um, Tanahisi Coates, he's a fantastic writer. Um, he's sort of written sort of a lot of books about race and politics, but he's also done comics uh, in the Marvel world on both Captain America and T'Challa uh, with mm-hmm. Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And those comics are great as well. Um, so I fully expect that we'll get a unique and fresh look at uh, the character while still m- sort of maintaining the essence of Superman. Um, which yeah. is something which, again, I think I think we I think we've been missing. I also think it's interesting in that were they to go the Black Superman route, I think Falcon and the Winter Soldier would be a good uh, sort of test uh, of sorts in terms of what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Because um, Captain America and Superman, uh, while they are very different when it comes to power mm. sets, when it comes mm. to actual character, I think there's a lot that's similar. Um, yeah. And thinking about what they might do with Franklin the Winter Soldier in terms of what does it mean to have a black man in that role in mm. today's world, I think they'll do something similar with a black Superman, and I think that would be very interesting to see. So what's your, what's your gut instinct in this one? Do you think this will be a reimagining of the Kal-El story, but with a, a black actor at its at centre, or do you think it'll be a different character who maybe also comes from Krypton and has the same powers and assumes the Superman mantle? Do you think it'd be an Elseworld story? What's what's your early gut instinct telling you? There's precedence of a black Superman in comics. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think that if, if I had to sort of put money on it, I think that is the route that they would go if they were to go the black Superman route. Um, and probably the one which I say... They're most likely to, because I, I, again, I, I, I do think we're going to see Henry Cavill as Carlel again. Um, well, yeah, we are this month. Well, <laughs> po- yeah. post yeah. Snyder Cut. Um, <laughs> oh, right, okay. <laughs> and um, I think it would just help general audiences to not sort of confuse another Carlel story when there's another black Superman again who's had precedence in comics already there waiting to be uh, adapted to the big screen. Mm hmm. Mm. But yeah, there was a Calvin Ellis Superman, wasn't there, rather than a Clark Kent? There was a black Superman in comic. I think it was a Grant Morrison one. Uh, yeah, in, in, in the comics, he's also the president, which <laughs> just just imagining the, <laughs> if they went that route, uh, the internet would just <laughs> go insane. Collapse. Not only yep. is he Superman, but he's also the president? Come on. <laughs> Come How on. How did he get shit why done? What a merry day, my God. His days are going to be packed. <laughs> J.J. Abrams' involvement is also interesting. He wrote a version, a Superman script years ago. I think it was the one that McGee was going to direct called Flyby, which yeah. apparently would have taken a, a hammer to the to the Superman mythology. It would have changed a lot of things. Krypton wouldn't have been destroyed, for example, in that. I'm Superman Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So I, I do wonder what this is going to look like. And of course, Michael B. Jordan was apparently trying to yeah. develop a Black Superman story at Warner Brothers for a while now. And he seems to be no longer on the scene on this one. 
But if if and when it gets the starting grid, I would be surprised if he's not in the mix to star mm. in the movie. And speaking of Michael B. Jordan, my God. Yes, he's oh, all about Segway. setting cars on fire and then getting into them <laughs> yeah. in the new trailer for Without Remorse, which is an interesting strategy for it's, interrogation. It's, it's, it's be a bit different. Yeah. 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 Well, he's probably, you know, just upset because his wife died. Oh, I don't know yeah. if we've mentioned that his wife dies. <laughs> and that's what drives him on a mission of revenge. Oh, <laughs> they better up. hope he doesn't survive, Helen. And he does survive. So he there does. You go. I, I honestly, I I watched the trailer for this, and um, and I I have never seen a movie in which a highly trained special forces operative <laughs> has his family wiped out and then vows to go on a mission of revenge. So yes, this is going to plow my ground. I'm I'm all for it. I'm pretty. Excited. I mean, look. Let me t- be totally honest. I'm 100 percent watching this. Obviously, yes, I'm only yeah, too. But like, <laughs> guys, come on. He could have been motivated by literally anything literally anything and yeah. really I, I know it's in the book but that's not an excuse it's not a great book by all accounts this is I have to confess it's a, John, a Tom Clancy I haven't read yeah but I mean come on people <laughs> still with the dead wives I know I know her name is Smeg Frigida which is a strange <laughs> strange character name <laughs> But the thing yeah. that really the thing that gives me hope that without remorse, which in case you don't know what this is, folks, is an adaptation. It's going to be an Amazon Prime video. It was meant to be released by Paramount, but you know because of the pandemic, they've they've sold it in in the end to Amazon. And it is the first John Clark movie. So John Clark is the kind of badass operative. Mm-hmm character in the Jack Ryan novels and films as well. So he's the Willem Dafoe character in Clear and Present Danger, and he's the D.F. Schreiber character in The Sum of All Fears. I'm not sure if he's in the Shadow Recruit one. I don't think don't he is. I don't think so, no. Uh, and so he's utter, utter badass. And so obviously they've they've reinvented this for a modern era as well. They've, they've, they've brought in Michael B. Jordan and he looks like he's fully committed to the role. He mm-hmm. has hit the gym, which is good because I was worried about him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yes. Famously schlubby Michael <laughs> <laughs> You know, the B stands for burger, as we, as we all know. Or beanpole, so, you know, at other yeah. times. Yeah. Or binge eating. Yeah. Um, none of those things are true. Uh, the man is cut and ripped and is abbed up. He's basically just a walking ab at this point, but that's fine. <laughs> and so he's playing John Clark. And the other thing that makes me really excited about this is that it's a reteaming of Taylor Sheridan and Stefano Salima who are the writer-director team on Sicario 2, which I thought was fantastic. Maybe not quite as good as Sicario, but... A few things are, yeah. (laughs) And I really, really hope they get to finish the trilogy one day, because that movie ends on something of a cliffhanger. And this one looks like... I hope that they bring something to it that we haven't seen in the trailer. Because the trailer yes. looks fairly bog standard, yes. I have to say. And yeah, I desperately want to see this film. Yes. <laughs> I can't Very separate those so. two feelings from each other. Very much so. Um, you know, I just think he should have had a better, as Helen says, a better driver for this. Like, for mm. example, he was so incensed that Amazon cancelled Bosch, for example, that <laughs> he <laughs> goes on a rampage yeah. of revenge. Yeah. Uh, which obviously segues me nicely into the fact that Bosch has been resurrected in a spin-off <laughs> series, even though Amazon cancelled him. So we will get to see more Bosch, but... 
That is not my fact. My fact is, in fact, that uh, Hugh Grant is joining the Dungeons and Dragons yeah. movie. I mean, as these the aren't villain. these aren't segues anymore. This is just, no, just realistic shit. Well, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say, who knew that Phoenix Buchanan would be the big bad in the upcoming Dungeons and Dragons uh, movie? And I, I applaud that. I think that will be great. I, I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm super here for that, and it's looking like quite a fun movie. Uh, it's got Chris Pine, doesn't it, and Regis Jean Cage um, mm-hmm. from Bridgerton. Mm-hmm. Who is working with another of the best Chris's segue <laughs> in the Grey Man, which is now like it's it seems like it's determined to really increase its star power and and, and really firm up a run for best looking cast ever assembled. Um, because that's Chris Evans, Ryan Gosling, Reggie John Page, um, Alfred Woodard, we've got Billy Bob Thornton, and a f- couple of other people I'm forgetting. Anna de Armas, right? Yes. I mean yes. It's not hideous, is what I'm saying. <laughs> that, I mean, that's fair. You wouldn't kick the grey man out of bed. Uh, that's... <laughs> this is true. So, so here's some here's another thing, which is unrelated to beds and or the cast of the grey man. But uh, Nomadland, which swept the board at the Golden Globes, uh, is going to Disney oh, Plus two. first. Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> it was a relatively modest board sweeping. Let's be honest, you had no idea how many Golden Globes it won before I had you no idea. I know it won some, and it's very good, and we've been waiting a long time to see it over here. My point, however, is that it is going to debut on Disney Plus on, I think it's the 30th of April? Yes. Coming. So, yeah, so we're going to see it there first. And, and it will also be in cinemas when they reopen. So that's Yes, fantastic. so it will come to cinemas eventually, but if you have Disney Plus, you can, if you so choose, mm-hmm. see it there. Mm. But All right. Feels like we kind of skipped over a lot of that news without discussing it. So the okay. Dungeons and Dragons and the Grey Man casting, yeah. these these are exciting things. Yeah. Further sure. discussion. I mean, I think. Look, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. The only bar they have to beat is better than the worst film ever made. <laughs> so, like, you know, I I, I feel. I feel optimistic at this point that they might do that. <laughs> Admittedly, you know, is casting a, a, a sort of you know slightly posh English actor, the best way to erase our memories of Jeremy Irons in the bad guy role last time? Possibly not. Perhaps not. (laughs) You know, maybe they could have gone a different way, but I'm not angry at it because, you know, Phoenix Buchanan, as you say. Uh, Just a couple of last bits of pieces. Jodie Comer is going to play Josephine in Ridley Scott's Napoleon movie. So this is the thing, she'd be fine casting if they had cast Napoleon way younger than Joaquin Phoenix, because uh, Joaquin Phoenix is <laughs> 20 years or more older than Napoleon was in the time period that they have this story set. And Jodie Com- Comer, <laughs> Comer is younger than Josephine was. And the whole thing about Josephine and Napoleon is that she was older than him. And it was this whole, oh, will she be able to have kids? Oh, no, she can't. Oh, well. So it like it makes no sense. This casting is bad casting. Uh, there, I said it. Uh, but, you wow. know, good luck with that, I guess. Listen. As long as Bugs Bunny's in it, bringing a bit of liberty to a Wacky Phoenix movie, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be happy. And this is, of course, Kitbag is the name of the movie we should probably mention. Kitbag, yeah. So he's going to be looking at the camera an awful lot and, you know, kind of going, ooh. Oh, sorry, that's Fleabag. It's an odd name. It's something to do with, isn't it like something they said, there's a general staff hidden yeah, in every, every soldier's no, kit every bag. every corporal has a field marshal's baton in his kit bag. I'm not going to put a lot of money on it, but I would say that I'd be very surprised if that movie's called Kitbag by the time it comes out yeah, in cinemas. Yeah. Um, I th- imagine the word Napoleon might be somewhere in the title. <laughs> <laughs> 
Pinocchio, mm. Pinocchio casting news, Cynthia Erivo and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And it says here, and more. I can't believe they got more. That guy's really busy. Uh, are joining <laughs> oh the Disney live action version of uh, Pinocchio, which will be directed by Robert Zemeckis and star Tom Hanks. So, yeah. As Geppetto exciting. rather than Pinocchio. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Just checking. I like all of these people. Mm. Um, so, so, yes, here for it. Uh, isn't there isn't there another Pinocchio movie starring starring or directed by Guillermo del Toro? Yeah, so. that's the animated one, which is currently uh, on its way. I know that Alexandra Desplat is uh, composing and has written some songs for it, so it's going to be a bit of a musical. That one, I'm assuming this one won't be, but I don't know. So dueling Pinocchio's, but this one has Keegan Michael Key as Honest John as well, and Lorraine Bracco as. Sophia the Seagull, who hopefully is one of the ones that was serenaded so beautifully by Jamie Dornan recently in Marvin Star. Seagull on attack, can you hear my prayer? Oh, so good. So Joseph Gordon-Levitt is going to be playing uh, Jiminy Cricket. Benjamin Evan Ainsworth is going to be playing Pinocchio. And uh, the Blue Fairy will be played by Cynthia Erivo. And who's Luke Evans playing? He's in there as well, right? Is he? I believe so. I haven't seen him in the, the cast list, but well, he's in um, our story about it. So that's is he exciting? Well, then it's almost certainly not true. Anyway, time now for our second and final guest this week, and it's a man who needs almost no introduction. It's one of the biggest movie stars of all time. It's Mister Eddie Murphy, who returns this week after well over three decades away from the throne of Samunda as Prince, now King. Akeem in Coming to America, the sequel to Coming to America. It's very confusing. There's a slight difference in intonation. Anyway, I was very, very happy to jump on the phone with Eddie the other week and have a good old natter about his decision to return to Coming to America, working with the costume designer Ruth E. Carter, going through the makeup process, working with Arsenio Hall, his good friend again. And a few other things besides. This isn't an in-depth, career-spanning interview. We didn't quite have the time for that. But I enjoyed myself immensely, and I hope you guys do too. I will say, I should point out before this interview begins, that because we did it on the phone, there were some phone connection issues initially, which is why we pick up in media res, if you will, with a cameo from the publicist, Ollie Lavery. So hi to Ollie for that. Uh, and that is why the interview begins with Eddie Murphy. And this is a bit of a lifetime ambition that I didn't know I actually had. Eddie Murphy busting my balls ever so slightly. Do please enjoy. Be all on the line now. Chris, are you with us? I'm with you, I hope. Okay, perfect. And we should have Eddie on the line as well. I'm here. I'm here. Amazing. I've been. I've been here. There you go. Thank you so much, guys. (laughs) Thanks, Ollie. I can only apologise, Eddie. I'm having a a phone situation at the moment. But how are you, sir? It's all good. Wonderful. How about yourself? Oh, you know, I can't complain, despite everything. But yeah, it's been been an interesting time. How have you been holding up during the uh, pandemic? Just like everybody else, you know. Frozen with fear with the family, sitting at home, watching the news, Mm -hmm. feeling the weirdness. Want them to be over. <laughs> I want this to be over so bad. Oh, I'm sure everybody's like that, but this is the weird, the weirdest year in my whole life. This last year, yeah, I'm sure, and everybody else. It's been crazy. I uh, God, can, can you imagine actually being in a room with people right now? That it, what, what, that it, that'd be heaven, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, man. I can't wait for, you know, things to get back to. But right now, I'm supposed to be, like, if this stuff didn't happen, I was going to be doing stand-up. I was going to be out doing stand-up. I can't wait to, like, think the world gets back to where people can go to shows and games and movies and all that shit. I can't. Oh my god, yeah. It's really a drag. How how far down the road of of stand up had you got? Were you uh, had you had, were you getting a set together? Were you uh were you road no, testing I material? Was, uh, I did I did lit- I literally did coming to America and then after coming to America I was supposed to start, you know, working out my shit, going to clubs and getting my shit together. And then the pandemic hit, like, you know, a, a month or two after we finished the move. And we had to go go sit on the couch. We just <laughs> missed being out there. A couple of, a couple of, if I went out there, if it, if it hit a little early, I would have been out there doing my stand. We just missed being out there and catching that shit. Oh my God. It's one of those things where you're going, right, okay, now it's time for me to go on the road, do stand up, be funny. And then the pandemic goes, no, fuck you. You're going to, you're, you're, you're yeah, going to sit at yeah, home. It's, it's, it's to everybody, <laughs> not just me, to everybody, to the whole world. Fuck yeah. you. Y'all going to have to make some adjustments. Y'all gonna, there, will, there will be some changes. Yeah. <laughs> and now we're so with everybody, the whole world is like, you know, had to take a step back and, uh, and, readjust and, and just and, and endure. One slight change, of course, is that coming to America is now going to be on Prime, but now everyone gets to sit down March 5th, they get to enjoy Absolutely. this movie. This movie this movie was made to be uh, to be played in a movie theater with a big crowd of people. Yeah. But uh, the world's changed so much, you know, we don't know when that's going to be, you know, so if this works out better now, being with Amazon, more people will, will see it there than will ever have seen it in the movie theater. You know, movies are only in the movie theater. Uh, you know, even if it's a big fucking smash, you're only in the movie theaters for you know a month, two months. Yeah. You know, then it's out in the world forever. You know, so we just starting out that way. It's okay, we're not in the theaters with the world audience. You know, you can just go downstairs and pop that shit on and watch it. <laughs> you know, it's all good. And right now. This movie is the perfect time for this movie because people need some uh, just a light moment. Just uh, this, this movie is funny yeah. and it's got some t- real touching stuff in it. It's yeah. sweet stuff in it, and it's good. good it's great yeah. performances. It's amazing to look at the Ruth Carter, the way she did these clothes and stuff. The the, uh, the wardrobe part is amazing, and the, the the way it's directed. Craig Brewer just did an amazing job, and you know. There's some inter- like we were saying a second ago. You know, it's it's you can't get there's no shows. There's no entertainment. There's you can't perform live. You can't do stand up. You can't do stuff. And, you know, so this is the perfect time. You know, the audience needs a, a light moment. You are no stranger to a sequel, sir. So going into this, people have been waiting for this movie for over thirty years now. What were the perils? What were the pitfalls? What do you what did you want to avoid with with this movie? Well, I don't know that people were waiting for it. For I think that kind of people kind of thought like you know that was because the coming to America ended with, and they lived happily ever after. That was the way mm-hmm. the movie ended, and, and so I never thought that I was going to do a sequel to this movie. And then over the over the course of the years, the movie became this this cult 
movie. Like none of my, of all my movies, Coming to America is the only one where on, on Halloween you have people dressed up as characters as from Coming to America. Nobody, nobody gets dressed up like Axel Foley on on, on Halloween. <laughs> people get dressed up as Coming to America characters, and and they show Coming to America on TV like crazy. It's like on all the time. So it like I was I was aware that the movie had like this this cult following. I think Jay Z and Beyonce got dressed up as the characters one year at one of their parties and so it was like yo this movie has a cult following and the people that like it really 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 like it so if we're going to do a sequel the movie has to capture the the spirit of the original movie and it it has to be you know uh, amazing otherwise you know you could fuck fuck it up for everybody and fuck the other movie up for people so i i, I was i we had to that's why we worked on the script for four years we had to have the script had to be solid everything had to be rock solid to make this movie because i knew that you know that the people that really liked the first one yeah see that's interesting because i always got the sense that people were waiting for this movie i got the sense that you know you'd made sequels to beverly hills cop and nutty professor and and a lot of your movies but you hadn't made a sequel to this one but this one felt like the next natural step not just because you could call it coming to america i mean it's right there eddie so that was that was that one of the big reasons <laughs> the title's right there Actually, uh, that came with that. We were originally we were going to call it "Coming to America" too, and uh, David David Sheffield, who wrote the script, mm. he was like, "We should call it Coming to America." And I was like, <laughs> "Hey, yeah." David's good at coming up with titles, and and uh, he, he David came up with Zamunda, like you know, that, like that, that just it sounds real. He's good with titles and names. You know? <laughs> There's a lovely sense of the gangs all here with this movie. You know, you've got, you know, pretty much everyone who was in the original movie who could be in this movie is in this movie. You got David and Barry wrote the the screenplay, but you also have, you know, Kenya Barris who wrote the screenplay as well. What did you Yeah, that and that's why the, that, that's why the script took uh, four years because Barry and David, me, Barry and David got the structure of the script down yeah. and what the themes, what themes we're going to be dealing with and, and our story, we got that. Then we needed Kenya to come in and, you know, make it a uh, Zamunda-ish. <laughs> <laughs> he, made it, he made it coming to America-ish. <laughs> he brought that modern stuff on it. <laughs> because there's there's some really there's lovely touches and lovely callbacks to the first movie but it's also about you know setting aside for the next generation and 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 it's about Akeem realizing that you know he has to make way in a way for the next generation so you have that lovely touching storyline was that something that, that came about organically as you know with 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 David and Barry and Craig and absolutely and absolutely yeah it, the, none of the stuff that why make for me when we when we writing when I'm writing something it all kind of starts off uh, one way and we'll start off we'll start off we'll know what all all the ingredients are and as we go along we figure out what the recipe is going to be and it changes or it'd be okay well this worked and that didn't work you know, take this out like for uh, in the original <laughs> uh, two drafts three drafts in Tracy Morgan is playing my son. Really, three drafts in, Tracy was my son. And, and, and four drafts in, I'm playing General Izzy, and I'm playing uh, the witch doctor, Baba. I'm doing all these and So it's like every, and the script kept changing and changing. And, and those different 
uh, elements, uh, you know, the touching stuff and, yeah. you know, all the, the, the little message stuff, all that stuff get, gets added along the way as you making this thing. And that's why it took four years to do. And that's not the usual process. Usually if uh, I have an idea or if, uh, you know, somebody is writing something, it might take, you know, four months yeah. to write a, to write a script, not, not four years. Did you have to ascertain people's availability before you, you moved on? I mean, did you always know, for example, that, I mean, you knew you were available, Eddie, but did you know that Arsenio, for example, was going to do the movie? Absolutely. Arsenio is really a, a close friend of mine. I see he's my, my oldest daughter's godfather. Mm-hmm. And I see Arsenio t- maybe twice a week or for the last 35 years, 40 mm-hmm. years. He's like really a, a close friend. So uh, I, he knew he knew the whole uh, process when I was when I first got the idea and started developing it. And the, he was aware of that all the way throughout, you know, but he had seen other stuff over the years. He had seen a bunch of people try to get coming to America stuff going and it never came together. So I guess, you know, he took it with a grain of salt. Like he, he, he didn't get excited. He was kind of indifferent. He was like, oh, yeah, you know, if it comes together, it comes together because <laughs> we never thought that we would be doing a sequel to this movie. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, I love the I love the fact that you guys see each other twice a week, and you're so good together in this movie and the original movie. Uh, if you know, I, I, I honestly, if I could be there seeing, seeing you guys twice a week, I'd be banging your heads together, going, "Guys, make more movies together." Honestly, what's going on? Well, what happened was I kept making movies, and Arsenio kind of went off into into a TV career. That's kind of yeah, he had different trajectories he started doing television i mean it's a, it's a good excuse it's a good excuse eddie i have, I have to say um that, no that's what happened no that's no i don't know i know making yeah. yeah but you mentioned you mentioned ruth e carter ruth actually we had her on the podcast she was one of the last people in our studio here in london uh before the pandemic really and uh you know she was in with uh, larry and scott to talk about uh, dolomite obviously you've worked with ruth so many times now over the years you know she's basically Eddie Murphy's official dresser, in a way, for for the movies, and I did like seven, eight movies with her. I reminded her, and I don't know if you remember this yourself, but I reminded her that you visited the set of Do the Right Thing when Spike was shooting in Brooklyn. Do you remember that? Uh, I remember going to the to uh, Do the Right Thing set, but I don't remember meeting Ruth that day. Okay, and I vaguely remember. I vaguely remember, like when you said, "Do you remember going?" To, to that set, yeah. I had to think, uh, okay, yeah, I do remember that. I don't remember, uh, I don't remember specifics of the day. Of course, okay. That's a long time ago. It's was a long, 30 years ago. 30, 32 years, something like that. But, uh, but yeah, because I, I, I interviewed Spike and uh, a number of the cast and crew uh, a year or so ago, and they were all talking about the day that Eddie Murphy came down to the set because you know, that's a day you don't forget. So I was just, I was just curious, is that, you know, did you remember that day? Was, you know, is that something that you like to do? You, you know, go and visit other people's sets to get an idea of what's going on? Oh, not at all. I think I might have went to that set uh-huh. uh, because uh, I was, I'm from Brooklyn and Spike was a new sensation from Brooklyn and, you know, we were both young and in the movie business and I might have been going down there to show support and mm. you know check them out but I don't be going to movie sets at all That's the last the last place you'll ever find me <laughs> if I'm not working is on a movie set 
<laughs> Why is that? Well, a movie. I making making a movie is work. Fair. I associate being on a movie set with work. You know, I do. A, I've done so many movies where uh, they do these special effects, makeups, and all this stuff. So you know, I associate I associate a movie set with sitting in a makeup <laughs> chair for six hours and having a, a, a rubber glue to my face. And, uh, and, yeah. And so I so I'm, I don't even think about going to movie, <laughs> watching somebody make a movie. I'm like, Shit. No. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. That's that's totally fair. That is fair. And there's a fair amount of makeup, of course, on on coming to America. No Rick Baker this time around, though. Did you? Uh, he's retired. No, no, but the, the but the but the guy that we use, he uh, he was like a Rick Baker, like like uh, geek. He grew up like worshiping Rick Baker, the same way I I was about Richard Pryor. He was like that about Rick Baker, and uh. <laughs> He's brilliant. What he did, what he did, these make the way he did these makeups was amazing. Is it easier than six hours these days, Eddie? No, it's still the same process. The technology hasn't advanced that process. You still have to sit in a chair for six hours and have them because it's meticulous. You know, this, this, these uh, appliances they go right up to the crack of your eye, and it's like it's not like uh, when I do these uh, these these movies uh, and I do these characters. Uh, I want to have the like I got spoiled off Rick Baker and Rick Baker <laughs> makes it look like real people like it looks like, look like a real person it doesn't look like oh uh, if I'm playing a woman if I'm playing Sherman's mother or something it doesn't look like oh he looks that's a man you can tell that's a man you know and the audience knows it's a man and we just gotta you know just go along with it but it's like no 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 that's a woman it turns you he turns you really the makeups really turn you into it, the, 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 the old Jewish man that I play in Coming to America mm. he turns you they turn you really into it it's not like oh that's Eddie you know making a funny voice and you could you could see that it's Eddie it's like I'm completely gone with these uh, yeah. appliances and uh, the, and it's super time consuming to get it so it's amazing it's, it's hard work it's hard work Eddie but it's amazing but uh, but listen I know you, I can let you go uh, I wish you all the best thanks for so much for doing this and good luck eventually post pandemic with the stand up yeah man thank you you stay safe bro you too man thanks very much right take care all right, so that was Eddie Murphy, and now it is time to start the review section by talking about Coming to America, not Coming to America. That's a completely different film. Or is it? Uh, Amon, now this is your favorite comedy of all time, the original it is, the 1988 John Landis movie. Where do you stand in the 2021 Craig Brewer follow-up? Yeah, so I think making... Oh, I think we know now. <laughs> I think we know. I think we know. <laughs> I think making a great... A belated sequel to a beloved comedy film from a few years ago is one of the most difficult things to do today. And I thought Coming to America did have a shot, though, because it's Craig Brewer directing, as you say. He's the same guy who directed Dolomite Is My Name, which really felt like a comeback of sorts for Eddie Murphy. I really loved that movie, and so did many other people in the the awards conversation, and deservedly so. So, you know... That sort of made me pose the question, maybe they could do it again. But the answer is not really, unfortunately, at least for me. Just to set, just to set up a little bit, um, when he finds out that he has a bastard son in Queens, King Akeem, once again played by Eddie Murphy, he returns to America with Semi, uh, once again played by Arsenio Hall, to meet uh, Lavelle, played by Jermaine Fowler, uh, who is the bastard son, and he is determined to honour his father's dying wish, um, King, King Akeem, so he 
takes his son back to Zamunda to teach him the ways of African royalty, which is much to the chagrin of the other members of his family. He, of course, has his wife, Lisa, once again played by Shari Hadley, and now three daughters. Um, and I'll start off with what I liked about it. Ruth Carter's costumes are oh my God. incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I so am good. prepared to throw out all the clothes in my wardrobe to make room for Ruth Carter uh, because the costumes are just like her, that her good. personally. That's kidnapping, Mom. We've talked wow, about this. Yeah, this is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> To make room for Ruth Carter's yeah. clothes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> wow. All right. Sorry, I should probably clarify like that. Um, I did enjoy Wesley Snipes' performance as General Izzy. Mm-hmm. He is having a ton of fun. The first time he's introduced is one of the few times I laughed quite hard because that introduction is incredible, much better than any introduction Chris has ever given me on this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow, they're not going to get better if you, uh, if you call them out. And, but you know, that is the most disappointing thing about this movie for me, in a sense, because it was one of the few times I laughed hard. I did not really laugh all that often watching this movie. Much of the humor didn't really land for me. And that's a real bummer, considering how iconic the first movie is in that regard. I watched that movie, I'm pretty sure I'm in, I'm close to you know, quadruple figures. And every time I watch that movie, I laugh hard and, and consistently. That didn't happen for me with this movie. I also was asking at certain points, who is this movie for? Because they were doing flashbacks to the original movie at certain parts of this movie. And I'm like, the whole reason you're here making this movie is because of the fans who you know, still have that movie ingrained in their brain for all time. Why do you need all these flashbacks? Uh, so that was weird to me. They also do that thing I absolutely hate, which is when films make jokes about how the first film was better and they shouldn't yeah, make a sequel uh-huh. because mm-hmm. of it. It's not cool. It's not funny. Stop Doesn't doing it. Doesn't give you a get out of jail free card. Oh my gosh. And you know, I think Leslie Jones is a funny person. I love her, especially on Twitter. I did not think she was funny here. Um, it was insane to me that Shari Headley uh, was not more involved. It takes her 30 minutes to get any meaningful dialogue. That feels mm. absolutely crazy to me. Um, mm. And I will say there are, there are some moments of genuine heart peeking through, uh, but they are few and far between. You know, the scenes where it gets real between Akeem and Mr. McDowell, or it gets real between Akeem and Je- King Jaffe Joffer in the sort of the beginning of the movie, that was genuinely effective. When it gets real between Akeem and Lisa, you know, again, this is why I wanted her to be more involved. We haven't really seen her sort of in Zamunda. We only sort of, you know, you know seen the wedding in the first movie. We haven't really seen what that life is like. And the fact that, again, it takes 30 minutes for her to say anything meaningful is just completely insane to me. So, yeah, I was, I was left feeling a little bit underwhelmed. Obviously, we will mm. always have uh, coming to America. That will never change. Um, but I just think about the longevity of that movie and how it's endured over, over all these years. Uh, the same thing is not going to be true of the sequel, unfortunately. See, I... I was wondering when watching this, because I hated this, absolutely hated it. And I wondered how much of that in my head was punitive. (laughs) Like, because Coming to America is one of my favorite films. Mm. I think, you know, it's Eddie Murphy at the top of his game. He is so fucking funny. It's original. It's really tightly written. It's got heart. It's got a great emotional arc to it. It just, it works on every single level. Mm -hmm. And... I wonder whether, you know, if this come along as just a, you know, AN other comedy drops onto, you know, Amazon, whatever it is, you'd, I'd possibly give it more of a pass. But I think it just compares so poorly 
to the original film because it leans heavily on the same jokes, mm. just yep. reheated and reserved. It's very fucking lazy. Like it doesn't attempt to do anything new either, you know, in terms of the humor or, you know, from a plot or emotional point of view. It's just reheating the same shit. And that that really upset me. It really did. I just thought there was so much potential here for a great film. And yet it's the same you know, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall putting on their prosthetics to do older versions of exactly the same characters. And that in itself isn't a terrible idea, but they don't do anything new or funny or fresh with them. It's just, hey, remember that time you laughed at that joke? Here's that joke again. Laugh again. And that seems to be the whole pitch of this film. I didn't really so much as smile during this. That may say a lot about me as much as it does about film I know. But, you know, for me, the funniest gag is actually an outtake in the end credits, which references Delirious. Like that, I laughed at. But most of this film, I just it just made me sad. It made me sad that, you know, it seems we're never going to get back to that place that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't recapture it. And it just, and I think you have, the, you have that danger that you have with any film like this, which is coming off a successful original film. It's like, the more you refer back to it, the more you remember mind viewers that there's a much better film mm. out there and that does not help you at all on any level um so yeah no i mean i had probably a better time with it than that because you know i did i, I did at least sort of chuckle wryly i had a mirthless mm. chuckle no i'm kidding a mirthful <laughs> chuckle at times um and and i i did have a lot of affection for the characters and i think i think the film does too and i think that can carry you through a certain a certain amount of the way because you just want what's best for these people who all seem like nice people and you're just like no i hope they figure things out that goes as well for the new characters particularly Jermaine Fowler as mm-hmm. as this long lost son i thought he was really really likable and Kiki Lane as Akeem's oldest daughter Mika mm. is fantastic absolutely fantastic loved her um, that's true but but that then brings you into one of the problems, which I think is the fact that every single person from the original film who's still alive, I think, came back. Like everyone came yeah. back. And so you want to give everybody at least a moment in the spotlight. And you also have all these new characters and you're trying to tell stories with them. And you're also trying to keep the focus very much actually on Akeem and give him a whole thing that he needs to learn and grow and a challenge he needs to overcome. And I mean, it's just a lot to do. And so one of the the big things, and I don't want to spoil too much, although I'm not sure how much of this you can spoil, but like one of the big things he he has to face is sort of the, the ways he hasn't lived up to his own ideals and the way he hasn't moved Zamunda forward as maybe he would have done as would have wanted to do as a young man. And that feels like something he and Lisa would have been discussing for the last 30 years. <laughs> and so why hasn't that happened? It feels like all the ca- all the cast has been sort of trapped in amber ever since, and there's been no real change and I think that might have been more interesting. Having said that, like I did still laugh. I did find Wesley Snipes very funny. The fact that mm. the next that their their country is called, mm-hmm. I think, Nextoria. Nextoria. Yeah. Nextoria. I I wow, that's that's impressive. <laughs> I meant to ask Craig Brewer, the director, about that because that's that's a bit like <laughs> You know, the day they came up with the name Lorenzo's Oil on on Paul, or the day that they realised that both Bruce Wayne and Clark mm-hmm. Kent have her mother's called Martha on Batman v Superman. That's the day you take the rest of the day off. And it's yep. like, okay, that's it. Nextoria. There's a country next door, and it's called Nextoria. Uh, I mean, it's lazy, but also it's funny. It leans into the laziness, yeah. and that itself becomes the joke. 
okay, day, let's take the day off, folks. We're done here. <laughs> the last one down the pub uh, buys around. Yeah, I thought I thought that was funny. It was ridiculous, yeah. but kind of funny. I just I just think it's it's one of these films where actually it needed to do less in order to do more and 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 give room for the humor to breathe. I I had clearly a better time with this movie than. than any of you. <laughs> no, like I enjoyed it. But, Having said all that, yeah. I did I did have fun. I just I just yeah. think it could have been great. It made me laugh fairly consistently. I, I'm not as wedded to the original as you guys are. I think it's 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 very, very good. But if I'm looking for a John Landis, Eddie Murphy movie, then I'm going for Trading Places every time. But yeah, it's very, very good. It made me laugh. And you know, it made me laugh out loud a number of times, especially in the first 20 minutes. And for that alone, mm. I, I'm, I'm totally on board with it. And it does look incredible. I mean, yeah. not just yeah. Ruthie Carter, yeah. but mostly Ruthie Carter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of it was shot in Rick Ross's house. Yes, I just learned this. <laughs> yeah, in Atlanta, Georgia, which makes me really, really want to go to Rick Ross's house. <laughs> Here's the thing I learned about coming to America recently, and I'm sure, I'm sure you might have known this as well, that Murphy and Arsenio wanted to make this with an all-black cast originally, like the original film. They wanted to make mm. it an all-black cast, and the yeah. studio refused and forced them to pick a white actor to be in it, and they yep. chose Louis Anderson, uh, who is in this film as well. But he is the only white member of the, the main mm. cast in the original film, and he's the only one here as well. But uh, yeah, he was forced upon them by the studio. Mm. Does not surprise me, unfortunately. It's interesting as well. I read I read the Tower Heist was originally set up as an all-African-American cast as well. And I discovered the other week that initially, at one point in the early days of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, have I said this in the podcast already? I'm not sure if I have, that there were initial tentative plans that never really got beyond the speculation stage of making Dawn of the Dead a sort of black exploitation zombie film that uh, would have starred O.J. Simpson. So um, perhaps, in hindsight, uh-huh. it's a good thing that that didn't happen. <laughs> you know? I wrote in my recent Black and Focus con, on still Empire Magazine right now, um, about uh, <laughs> <laughs> about uh, coming to America and how far ahead of the game it was mm-hmm. in that regard. To have an all almost all black cast in 1988 um, was a big deal. And I think at least some of the cameos that we see in the sequel are from people sort of who had a great deal of affection for yeah. that movie. And, and that was nice to see them sort of, uh, sort of mm-hmm. pay it back and have that come full circle. Like that. Absolutely. But we all vary wildly on this film, I think, as you can tell. But uh, we, as a magazine, the entity that is Empire Magazine, gave us three stars, which we always say in the podcast is a recommendation. So it's out this week on Prime Video. Up next, we have the latest slice of Disney animation. And this is going to be on Disney Plus this weekend. It is a an extra fee to rent this. You don't get this automatically as part of your Disney Plus subscription, folks. It is Raya and the Last Dragon. Jimbo, is it worth the outlay? Indeed, that is the question. So I should probably say I'm not, I would say, the biggest animation stand oh you'll ever God, meet. What but, do you like? But, <laughs> <laughs> that's a fair question. It's a fair question. I will say, though, while I am not like massively into animation, I do have a soft spot for these kind of Disney animations, sort of their run of female-led adventures. Hmm. Uh, and while this one doesn't have any kind of musical bangers in it, largely on account of it not being a musical. Uh, (laughs) This is no exception. Like, I really like this one too. So it's directed by Don Hall and Carlos Lopez Estrada, uh, and it sees the ever-delightful Kelly Marie Tran uh, return to the screen. She's Rhea, and she's a princess of the heart tribe of Kumandra, which is a fictional land based on sort of Southeast Asian culture, and they once shared their world with Naga-inspired 
water dragons. Uh, there's this single dragon gem which embodies the last of the dragon magic, and it keeps this evil force known as the Droon at bay and stops it from turning everyone into stone. However, however, oh, no. uh, Commander has these warring tribes, and they end up destroying the stone, releasing the Droon. Everyone gets turned to stone, and Rhea sets out on a quest to track down the fragments of it, save the world, while accompanied by Aquafina's Cece, who is the titular last dragon. Uh, also, uh, a diminutive sh- sort of shrimp chef, a giant woodlouse, uh, and a con baby with her trio <laughs> of errant monkeys. Now, <laughs> as you may have got from that, there's quite a lot of lore to get through this film. <laughs> so much so that there is a prelude followed by a lengthy prologue <laughs> followed by the film itself. So there's a lot of narrative movement to get through until you understand what's going on. That said, I don't think it actually drags because of mm. that. I actually think it, it really enriches the world of this, uh, which is which is you know really well thought out really well drawn and draws on all sorts of influences from modern and ancient folklore from sort of southeast asia uh, even to the you know the attention to detail and that the martial arts in it are predominantly sort of silat muay thai so again drawn from that part of the world so it's very consistent but it's also beautiful to look at yeah, like, the really water gorgeous. effects in this are fucking unbelievable mm. and mm-hmm. the characters and the low cars are just amazing and they're really distinct they've got personality there are these icy wastes there are deserts there's a there's a sort of bustling market town and it really gives it a flavor for for the kind of the 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 different areas whether it be talon or heart or spine all the tribes are named after a part of a dragon the voice acting i thought was really good across the board aquafina nails it as cc i think i loved her in this and i I was speaking to our ben travis about this he think he was a little disappointed he wrote the review on the website um he was a little disappointed that she didn't have the kind of as many gags or one-liners as you might expect and i get it because she's aquafina but i do think you know she plays a kind of narratively driving role in this she's not the comic relief Mm -hmm. and i think that's the reason for that i think she she Absolutely nails it. Brilliant casting, but it isn't a gag a minute because there, did I mention there's a fucking con baby? Like, there's comic <laughs> relief in in other places, and Noi the baby was I think a highlight for me. I thought she was great. <laughs> Gemma Chan is in this as well. She voices uh, Raya's nemesis Namari. Uh, there's Benedict Wong is in this as well as Tong is big old warrior chap. Sandra Oh, Daniel Day Kim, lots of great people in this. Um, they're all kind of uh, huge presences, and I think Raya herself as a character is maybe a little more understated than the others. But Kenny Marie Tran does a really really good job. Uh, she gives that character sort of real warmth and, and makes her really likable. I also think the fact that she's a badass Silat fighter does kind of help in that area as well. She's got this kind of whip sword, which is amazing. And the fight sequences in this with this zooms and kind of crazy camera work are really effective. Like it has a real blockbustery feel to it. Mm. And I think that's what made this stand out for me. Like, it has a feeling that yes, it's an animation, but you can imagine this as a huge fantasy live-action blockbuster, uh, oh, yeah. and it and it's really impactful and it really works. No way, this huge story, these brilliant fights, this sweeping scope, um, and they also use this very interesting sort of. Uh, sort of narrative device they use 2d animation to fill you in in back backstory which i thought looked really nice as well uh yeah i thought this was great i enjoyed this a ton more than i thought i would and i kind of think if you've got disney plus and access to a small human it's definitely worth uh worth giving a go obviously and another 20 quid to spare on top of that (laughs) but uh yeah loved it thought it was great dragons all round. i liked it i didn't quite love it i did love kelly movie tran it's amazing what she can do when she actually has dialogue Intent wise of Skywalker. <laughs> um, we should also mention though that, um, you know, this film has come under a little bit of criticism because the story is rooted in Southeast Asian folklore and much of the voice, voice cast is East Asian. So I think that criticism is valid in certain respects. But yeah, I agree with what you're saying about 
Orkafina about the animation. I wish I saw this film in the cinema. I can add it to the list. <laughs> yeah. um, the fight choreography is great. I really like James Newton Howard's score. The thing that held me back from full on loving it was that, well, there's two things. The message, for, firstly, was just one, was, was just two one note. Like, I think it's interesting. Soul, which is the previous Disney film, has too many messages, I think. And I think this has too few. It's very simplistic. And the message itself, which you say, is just one of trust and about trusting your enemies and sort of taking the first step even after they betrayed you repeatedly. And I think, I think it works in the world of the film. But when I think about the animated movies that really I love and you know, take it to the next level and really move me on a mental, physical, emotional level, the messages those films have resonate beyond the film itself. And the message uh, as sort of it's rendered in Raya didn't quite do that for me. Um, but I still sort of really, really enjoyed it. I think there's a lot to love and uh, I too would recommend uh, paying the extra for this. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the message is pretty universal actually. And I think it's, if anything, too focused on the US right now, um, but but it, it does have a general application. I, I really, really like this. I wasn't massively hyped about it beforehand and I'm not quite sure why not because, you know, I like dragons. They're my favourite. <laughs> But no, I just thought I just thought it was gorgeous looking, which I did 100% expect. Uh, I thought the voice cast did a phenomenal job, as you say. Kelly Marie Tran just gives it so much warmth to that character mm. because as we as we spend time with Raya, like she's mostly kind of shut down, grieving, guilt ridden, and uh, and yet she still manages to imbue her with a sort of underlying warmth that she's just not you know sort of accessing right now because of all this trauma that she's been through. And I thought that was really, really impressive playing from her. Um, and and it, I, it just worked really well for me. I liked how it built. I, liked, I mean, it has a very traditional kind of quest structure in many ways, very high fantasy kind of structure. Yeah. But I thought it generally worked really, really well. Yeah. I had a lovely time. Four stars then. Four stars for Raya and the Last Dragon. And it's up to you to decide whether you want to spend your hard-earned cash this week or buy Women vs. Hollywood <laughs> instead. Wait, it's a straight, it's a straight choice? It's oh a my straight God. choice. There are no other options. So you have £20 this weekend. You can either buy a book that will nourish your brain tree or you can watch a film. Well, there's no need to buy the book, though, because if you go back over the last year's podcast and put all the fact <laughs> sections together, you've pretty much got the whole fucking Most thing. Most of those did not come from the book, as people who have now read it can tell you. Oh, they may have come from research for the book, but they didn't specifically come from the book. Anyway, Helen, one thing I've always said about you is that you got Moxie, kid. I do, yes. And in this case, it's absolutely true. You got Moxie. <laughs> Tell us all about it. Yes, this is the new film from Amy Poehler, who's directing. Um, and she also plays the mother of our central character, who is Vivian, played by Hadley Robinson. And she is a average high school girl, quite quiet, quite retiring. But she gets pushed to the edge, basically, by the sexist and really toxic atmosphere in her high school and is kind of inspired by a new girl in school, Lucy, who's played by Alicia Pascual Pena, who is actually willing to stand up and say, this is not okay. That boy is harassing me, for example. Mm. Um, that boy, in this case, being the absolutely hissable Mitchell, played by Patrick Schwarzenegger. Mm -hmm. I cannot stress enough how absolutely awful this kid is. <laughs> Should we take a second to boo him? Boo. Let's boo him. Boo. 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 Should we throw in a hiss? Hiss. 
Kill him, do it Kill him. To be clear, we are hissing Mitchell and not Patrick Schwarzenegger, who is very good at being hissable. Yes. Uh, Should we take a second film? to applaud him? Hurrah! Because he's so good. Oh. Hooray, well done. Yeah. Hey, anyway, um, <laughs> so Vivian, thus inspired, begins publishing an anonymous zine, uh, Moxie, and uh, gets, <laughs> seriously, and inspires all the other girls in her school to sort of stand up to this, this awful atmosphere and kind of fight back and start pushing for slightly better and more equal treatment. Specifically, for example, in trying to challenge Mitchell for this sort of sports ambassador of the year uh, on behalf of Kira, played by Sydney Park, who is the school's female uh, football captain and is a much better sportswoman than he is. Well, he's not very good sportswoman at all for obvious reasons. <laughs> he's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a film with its heart very, very much in the right place. It portrays sort of student activism and youth activism in a really empowering and inspiring and encouraging way. I would say, though, that the novel was written a few years back. And so some of the stuff in this film already kind of feels a little bit dated to me mm. and already feels like stuff that teenagers nowadays just wouldn't put up with. Um, so I kind of almost wish it had been set in the 90s or earlier noughties because I feel like it might have been, it might have felt a little more believable in some senses. And I think it's also a in some cases, a shame that we're focused on Vivian, who is, you know, a nice white girl with a very, very supportive mother who is 100% behind her all the way and not on anyone else. Like her best friend, Claudia, is uh, played by Lauren Sai, is a really, really much more interesting character in some ways because she is someone who faces real consequences both at home and at school from being involved in this activism and, and she's the sidekick in some ways. So I feel like there there are maybe some there are maybe some missed opportunities here for for kind of updating this and making it a bit more current and a bit more uh, speak to our generation a little bit better. Uh, when I say our generation, I of course mean teenagers and not me. <laughs> Four generations below us. <laughs> oh God. But I mean, what I will say for this film is I just had deep love for pretty much all the characters except for Mitchell, who can fuck Duh. off. It's just dreadful. But like, I just, I, I was desperately invested in all of these girls getting, mm. you know, everything that they wanted in life because I just thought they were adorable. And not just the girls. Um, Nico Hiraga plays Seth and he's just a super, super good role model for any, any boys out there. He's just amazing. And I just wanted yeah. them all to live happy and fulfilled lives and have affordable <laughs> college and healthcare and just like be their best selves because they're all just so lovely and, and and, and and smart and funny and oh, just wonderful. So yeah, yeah, it is really inspirational, even with those caveats that I mentioned. I was exactly the same, which is why I was bummed out when they all died at the end. <laughs> now, I, I really enjoyed this too. I thought it was a lovely, lovely little film. I, I mean, I think it's unsubtle and rather heavy handed at times. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also, honestly, I'm not 100% convinced it's a comedy. Like It's kind of pitched, mm -hmm. I guess, as a teen comedy, but it's not directly funny. I don't think it tries to be funny. It doesn't really have jokes. It has that, you know how teen movies have that kind of buoyant lightheartedness that keeps the tone quite light? I think mm -hmm. it has that. I think that. it's called Youth. So it's Yes, yeah, called being young. Like it has a buoyancy through it, so it never gets bogged down, except in a couple of moments, like where it gets more serious. But so it's always light, and it's it keeps you happy rather than amused. But I think that is deliberate. Um, I think the characters are really compelling. I think you root for them exactly as you said. Like you are so on board with these characters, and you love them. Um, I there is a sense. I don't know whether it's because it was when it was written or who wrote it or how it is that. 
that maybe it's like someone trying to trying very hard to be very Gen Z and maybe slightly missing the mark at points. Like it feels like I know I'm not qualified to judge. I can be honest with you, but I do think. <laughs> something doesn't quite always gel there. Um, but I think it, it, you know, it tackles really important issues and it tackles them head on. And I think it's like, it's a really interesting, you know, framing and the way that it looks at shit that obviously girls and women have had to deal with since time immemorial, mm -hmm. but like through the lens of a changing world where the boundaries of what isn't, isn't acceptable are moving very much for the better. Uh, and it's, you know, it's the way, the way it tries to sort of put them in that position where they're not quite sure and they're making progress but not enough progress i really like that i don't think it's super delicate in the way it handles it and it occasionally has the subtlety of a wrecking ball with mm -hmm. or without a naked miley cyrus attached to it um but it's lovely it's charming it's sweet yeah, i thought it was great i really did yeah i mostly agree with that like the the couple of times there's a couple of big moments that i think lose a lot of their power because they're so unsubtle uh, including the final moments, uh, at least for me, a lot of that power was diluted. But I do agree with a lot of what you're saying. I too uh, really liked uh, Nico Huraga's performance. I thought that was great. Mm. I do think more effort could have been made in terms of um, who they chose to spotlight. Like there's a trans girl in this, there's a girl with a wheelchair in this. They feel very incidental to everything else that's going on. And I think that's a bit of a shame. Um, but I did enjoy it. I, I did root for pretty much everyone aside from sort of Mitchell and aside from, it's a pet peeve of mine in, this, in some of these films because I, I know how I was brought up and I know that if I talk to my parents the way Vivian does at points in this film, I would not be able to sit down comfortably for weeks. And <laughs> that is not what happens to her in this film, shall we say. But I, overall, I did enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the core of this, isn't it? The, the relationship she has with her mother. And I really like the fact that Amy Poehler, who directs this, uh, yeah. takes a really kind of understated backseat in this. Her character is very straight, and she's very much in the background as a presence. And even though she kind of inspires Vivian, you know, and there are obviously scenes they share, she's, she's a very much a lower presence in this. But I, yeah. I like the relationship they have with her, that she was an activist in her youth and therefore is supportive. But her daughter is, you know, sufficiently teenage. She doesn't want to talk to her about it, and she's being a brat all the time. Uh, I actually thought their relationship was actually very convincing, you know, because it is largely just the two of them. The father isn't yeah. as much on the scene. I, I liked it. Mm. I liked it for most of the running time. But uh, I mean, this is, I don't think this is a spoiler, but like Vivian at one point does go just go off the deep she end at her really in, in a does. way that just didn't feel warranted and, and didn't feel as true as I think the rest of their relationship did. So that was the bit that kind of threw me out a little it's, bit. It's the thing where mm. she's kind of got other stuff going on. So she's projecting, isn't mm. she? It's yeah. not really mm. about her mother. It's just that she happens to be there and is collateral damage. But mm. uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, this is a movie that literally calls out mediocre white men and says basically they've had their chips. And so I, as a mediocre white man, <laughs> probably am not the best person to talk about this movie. But I, I reviewed it for the magazine. I gave it four stars. I thought it was terrific for the most part. I think it does slightly, it's very well intentioned, mm -hmm. I would say. But the I'm not sure it completely and utterly sticks to landing. It maybe gets bogged down in becoming a message movie uh, mm -hmm. at the end. But I thought the characters were great. I had a great time with them. You know, I thought it's a light comedy. It's not a book smart was a more out and out comedy, mm. you know, very much so. Uh, I think this is kind of maybe more in the eighth grade school 
of school comedies uh, in a way, and that it's, it is it's very dramatic as well, and the the comedy itself is very very understated. But uh, so I give it four stars, as you can tell. I think uh, Amon and Helen are probably on the three star category for this one yeah. uh, as well. But um, but yeah, four stars for Moxie. The film's got Moxie, Moxie Roxy. Could have been Poxy, but Moxie Roxy. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Now I have to go and edit this fucking thing. Christ almighty. You'll, by the time you're listening to this, you'll have had no idea of the up a dawn pride swallowing siege that this podcast recording session has been. Oh my God. Anyway, join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by, I think... Joe Manganello, star of Arch Enemy. And yes, we maybe gave that a kick in on last week's show, but that's just not dwelling at now, shall we? <laughs> we still like him. We still like him. We He's do. great. He's we great. We like him. He's great. And I didn't give it a kick in. <laughs> so you're fine. You're covered. So I'm totally fine. Totally fine. And also, we, you know, he's... We won't be in the same room, and he's much bigger than me, so that's probably a good thing. <laughs> Anywho, we'll be talking about uh, we'll be talking to one of Hollywood's biggest fucking nerves uh, on next week's show. Mm-hmm. So, I'm very much looking forward to that one. Uh, but until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from our squad cast names: <laughs> Sexual Chocolate, <laughs> a mod woman. I believe the children are future. <laughs> Teach them well. Let them lead the way. Peace. Peace. (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, It is goodbye from good morning, my neighbors. Yes, yes. Fuck you, too. (laughs) James Dyer. (laughs) Always a pleasure. It is goodbye from a moxie heart. The name on everybody's lips is going to be moxie. (laughs) 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 I mean, since we're singing. Bye. And it's goodbye from me, Ronald McDowell. It's like Ronald McDonald, but but slightly different for legal purposes. Uh, I'm off to insert a talking cartoon rabbit into every single Whacking Phoenix movie, just for light relief. It'll especially fit in to Inherent Vice. Eee, what's up, Doc? <laughs> See, because he's called Doc in that movie. His character is called Doc in that movie. Ah, thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye.